Hi, and welcome to Hell of Presidents. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Matt Christman. And this is episode 13, Bad Actors. It's January 26th, 1998, and the President of the United States is on TV assuring the nation he did not get a blowjob in the Oval Office. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false. And I need to go back to work for the American people. Thank you. President Bill Clinton had, in fact, had an affair with a much younger White House intern named Monica Lewinsky, spanning sometime from late 1995 to early 1997. As this affair slowly came under investigation and became public knowledge, Clinton's acts of perjury and obstruction of justice would lead the House to issue articles of impeachment for the first time in 130 years. And though Clinton was acquitted in the Senate, this affair would be the indelible stain at the so-called end of history. A sense that so many problems had been taken off the table by the end of the go-go 90s that we could be focusing the full force of the federal government on the question of how many of y'all like sex? Yes. Uh, the, the Clinton impeachment is the culmination of this, uh, this tectonic shift in American politics as one social contract gives way to another. So if we imagine American history as a series of social contracts that come into being through conflict between labor and capital and that uh, they then achieve some sort of uh, uh, equilibrium and then break apart under their own contradictions. We see this over and over again. Once we have the final constitutional structure and the notion of like uh, market capitalism emerge out of the Civil War because the first 70 years is a fight over what the framework is going to be. Uh, once we have like a state capable of enforcing a national uh, social contract, it does so in the form of the free labor, Simon Pure liberalism of the 19th century. That's the, that's the um, system that emerges from the Civil War. Uh, and it says that you can rise and fall in America by the grace of God, basically. The market would be there to uh, determine who was good, who was bad, who deserved riches and who deserved poverty because everything – uh, is coming through individual effort in a meritocracy. And the government existed, the constitutional order existed, to uh, maintain that structure, to allow that natural process to carry itself out. Now, that uh, obviously was the ideology, but the reality of it was people at the bottom of the economic pyramid were uh, mostly just coerced into acceding to this world, uh, but those in the middle were bought off one way or another so such that they could believe that hey, if I do struggle through the market, I can make it because I can have my own land or uh, I can own my own business. Uh, and that battle raged all the way through uh, the 19th century until it became unsustainable in the early 20th and the progressive movement arises, which is essentially the revolt of this political class between labor and capital that becomes like self-aware, essentially, mm -hmm. and is able to act independently 
uh, as a broker between these two forces. And that's the progressive refoundation of that social contract, uh, which requires for its uh, brief peak, its brief heyday of actual stability, the artificial uh, economic boom of the credit-fueled 20s. It's the mirage of credit-fueled wealth making up for the fact that no one's going to catch you if you fall, basically, mm-hmm. that keeps people on board along with the crushing of the labor movement uh, after World War One. That's mm-hmm. the stick. And as soon as that, an exogenous shock to that system, uh, broke it up uh, with the Great Depression, uh, the, the, the next great uh, overproduction crisis of capitalism that happens inevitably, this shatters the social contract almost overnight. And uh, there's a massive uh, working class revolt along all axes across America, this newly proletarianized America asserting their rights. The, the organization, the structure that captures all of that energy is the Democratic Party. And they essentially dictate a new social contract, a new deal uh, brokered between a reluctant capitalism and a restive and pissed off and organized uh, labor that emerges around a notion of a mixed economy social democracy where democratic control of uh, markets is sufficient to ensure downward redistribution so that there is a national interest that we're all members of, so that their government does represent us in like a corporeal sense. And what sustained that, what made it possible after the the flux and conflict of uh, the Great Depression and World War II was the post-war economic order in which the United States was the sole world hegemon, the, Mm -hmm. the workhouse of the world and the shopping mall of the world. And that stabilized to a remarkable degree this social contract. That's why you have the idyllic 50s of growth. But then, of course, because people at the bottom are demanding entry into this thing, mm-hmm. it creates a social conflict and social contradictions that burst forth in the period of its greatest uh, material um, promise, the 60s. And what that means is that uh, when the shock comes again in the form of the energy reprice of the oil uh uh, embargo era, the early 70s, coupled with, uh, you know, just the upward drive against profits made by the demands of labor uh, through rising wages, you have another crisis. But here there is no working class to uh, uh, in, uh, insist on its own part. And so this new social contract is made fully uh, behind closed doors and amongst the power brokers of the capital dominated political parties. And the new, the new social contract that they create, without naming it the way that Roosevelt did, because it's not a popular project the way that the New Deal was, uh, was that we were going to go back to the old uh, understanding of government. Government as facilitator of market transactions, which means that you're going to rise and fall to your own luck, basically, and skill. And we're going to call that luck and skill merit. Uh, and that deal was, of course, baffled by the political parties, came out in different uh, garb, but it was largely accepted by the middle class of this country, this artificial construction made up of professionals and laborers who had in common essentially the ability to access home ownership, the last vestige of the yeoman dream. These are the last yeoman we have, are the homeowners who got a place out of the New Deal bonanza, who got equity out of that. For them, they were going to no longer have the government ensuring that their wages go up because that's wages are not a question for government to intervene with. But 
they will be able to, you know, do as well as they can. But because they have a home and because they have a job, uh, they can be assured that they will have access to credit. And the credit will allow them to continue living with an idea that there could be a upward mobility. And the real engine of upward mobility, the thing that makes this viable to the homeowning class, is that the institution of a higher education, of the collegiate education, becomes a guarantee of access to the new jobs that are uh, going to be in the knowledge economy as America loses its industrial base. But you have to be of merit to get those jobs. And if you're in the middle, that feels right. You think you have merit. At the bottom, uh, this feels like you're being abandoned. And this feels uh, like the betrayal of uh, a state project that you had invested in. And that turns you against it. But those people who make up the, the center of gravity of the American electorate are homeowners. And so they sanctify this new social contract. And the terms of it were really up in the air in 1980s because Carter had an idea, basically, to deal with the, this new uh, reality that, oh, we can't afford to give these the proles this much anymore. We're going to have to start uh, uh, selling this machinery off for scrap uh, in order to maintain profits while cutting, uh, cutting wages. So Volcker understood and said publicly that the standard of living of the average American would have to go down. Carter's idea was to tell them, to, was to help make America be okay with that, to basically say, it's sure, we're not going to have the same standard of living, but we're going to have more meaning in our lives <laughs> because we're going to find things that aren't consumerism to make our, us feel uh, good and to feel happy. And of course, that's all well and good, but this is still a capitalist system in crisis where workers have no control over their lives, where we truly are at the mercy of capital in a way that deprives us of any sense of autonomy and that makes us alienated. Like that's just the reality of it. And in that maelstrom, you're asking us to be happy about it. Now that did appeal to some people, the new base of the Democratic Party, because after the, the break between the labor movement and the Democrats in the 70s, the new uh, average Democratic voter was a suburban professional who was with the Democratic Party, not because they saw it as an engine of their self, their material self-interest, as the work labor movement did, but as a representative of their moral self-interest, their sense of themselves as good people. For them, the Carter Nostrums about, uh, about finding a new meaning in your life outside of the uh, consumption sounds like a noble challenge for someone who's comfortable, someone whose job is relatively unalienated, who has a relatively high salary, who does not work with their hands, doesn't get sweaty. But for the rest of us, for the rest of Americans, certainly those who had a home, that sounded like, uh, like hair surgery. That sounded like Puritan nonsense. And uh, there was another option, and that was the option of Reagan. Reagan presented a new idea that had been honed through the uh, growth of the new right from Taft to Goldwater, to Reagan, they had crafted a, a, a alternative social concept, a new wineskin for the old wine of the uh, laissez-faire market. Uh, and it was, you can still get ahead in this country. You can still uh, m gain materially and, and consume at your desire because we're going to get the government off your back because the government no longer serves you because there is no more common interest. We are all on our own. And so 
the only things you can do is get rid of things like taxes and regulations that do take money away from your paycheck and that do make it difficult for you to be an entrepreneur. Like the red tape of a, being a small business owner, it's real. I mean, it's, it's for a reason, but it is felt as an imposition. And those are things that are alienating about government. And you can refuse government from the New Deal era when people, the good things in their life, they ascribed to the government because they understood the government process that gave it to them to an era where the government's hand would be invisible and all the, the, the government's largesse rather would be invisible. And all that anyone would feel of the state is its most alienating and coercive elements. All we feel from this point on as political citizens is the state as uh, machinery of compulsion. This is on the right anyway. Uh, and so the hand, like the, the, the largesse of the system is buried because it's all in the form of uh, mortgage uh, interest deductions and tax cuts and things that seem to be the absence of government. Uh, and in that context, the state starts to genuinely wither. Its capacity goes away and its ability to help anybody goes away. So that makes it more alienated from everybody. And that spins us all away from material politics because the government has now become not a site of contestation of rights, but just this machinery uh, of alienation. And so politics becomes a question uh, of pure cultural significance because if the machine of capitalism is beyond our reach, then all we can do uh, is to gain control of the cultural manifestation of that culture. Like if women are going to enter the workplace, on what terms are they going to enter the workplace? Not what do we do about the fact that you can't raise a family on one income anymore? Mm -hmm. That's used to be, how you would phrase that question. Now, neither party frames it that way. It becomes women in the workplace. And that means that cultural uh, grievances that are aligned around racial and gender and geographic lines, the superstructural manifestations of our personalities become dominant. And that's how we vote and that's how we perceive ourselves as political subjects. And what that means is by the time we get to the Clinton administration, politics has been totally winnowed into a spectacle of morality uh, and cultural preference. And so that's why we get so close to the Nixonian. Uh, I mean, the Nixon, the Watergate impeachment is this, this uh, apocalyptic moment in American democracy. But the Clinton impeachment is just this sad, um, it's the tragic echo, where now we're just in the, in the uh, spectacle end of this, where real power is no longer at, uh, uh, at contest. But we still get the same forms because we're stuck in the same constitutional structures uh, and uh, party structures uh, that we had built for a different political economy. And so then, that's why we start here at the vapid and ironic capstone of this era. A presidential crisis entirely divorced from the otherwise revolutionary transition in governing and presidential politics. The much-discussed, if often poorly defined, neoliberal turn. And through this era of conservative revolution in both parties, the dismantling of the last vestiges of New Deal labor power, 
undermining of the welfare state, actual presidential scandal and illegal arms trade and manufactured wars, deregulation, crime bills, NAFTA, and stolen elections. The malfeasance that looms above the rest is the president got some top. I'm on the top floor, presidential suite, Monica Lewinsky, presidential freak. So let's then go back to 1980. When this era's man on horseback, this time a literal fake cowboy, takes the reins. This is a man whose time has come. A strong leader with a proven record. Ronald Wilson Reagan was born. Ronald Wilson Reagan. (laughs) Ronald Wilson Reagan was born on February 6th, 1911 in Tampico, Illinois. The family moved around for a bit before settling in the small town of Dixon in north central Illinois. He attended Dixon High School and then Eureka College in Illinois. He was a mediocre student, but active participant in student life, including theater and campus politics. Reagan graduated and got some gigs as a radio announcer, eventually announcing Cubs play-by-plays for WHO in Des Moines. While covering Cubs spring training in Southern California in 1937, Reagan took a screen test and was signed to a contract with Warner Brothers Studio. Ronald would appear in over 50 movies in the following years. His notable performances include of football star George Gipp. You know, the Gipper you're supposed to win one for. Ask him to go in there with all they've got. Win just one for the Gipper. In 1940s, Newt Rockney, All-American. And as Drake McHugh, a fun-loving young man who gets both his legs amputated in an accident and wakes up screaming, Where's the rest of me? In the 1942 film, King's Row. Randy? Where's the rest of me? Randy? Yes, Drake? It was that accident. King's Row made Reagan star enough to share double billing with the likes of Errol Flynn, but after enlisting in the Army Reserves in 1937, and hey, I was commenting last week that all our World War II-era presidents were Navy guys, Reagan is our first Army guy since Eisenhower. Reagan gets called up for active duty in 1942, and his Hollywood career never fully recovers. In the Army, his poor eyesight gets him classified for limited duty only, and Reagan spends the war making promotional and training films for the Army. Upon returning to Hollywood, Reagan's acting career is in a less glamorous place. This is the era when Reagan stars in Bedtime for Bonzo, opposite Peggy the Chimpanzee. But in 1947, Ronald Reagan becomes the president of the Screen Actors Guild, the union governing motion picture performers. In this capacity, he testifies before HUAC that SAG contained, quote, a small group more or less following the tactics that we associate with the Communist Party, and that, quote, they have been a disruptive influence. Separately from his SAG president role, he also secretly gave names to the FBI of actors believed to be communists. But he also negotiated royalty payments for actors in TV and movie reruns. So, uh, win for his union comrades there. Ronald met actress Jane Wyman on the set of the film Brother Rat in 1938, and they were married in 1940. They had one daughter and one adopted son before separating due to, quote, political differences. She was a lifelong Republican and Reagan was a Democrat during their marriage. Reagan then met actress Nancy Davis, helping her clear her name from the Hollywood blacklist in 1949. They were married in 1952 and would go on to have two children, Patty and Ron. Reagan would be the first divorced president and the first president with a living ex-wife. In the 1950s, Reagan moved into TV and became the host of General Electric Theater, 
an anthology drama series which ran for 10 seasons. As part of this role, Reagan became a touring PR representative for GE, traveling across the country giving pro-business talks about the dangers of government overreach on behalf of General Electric to its employees. This time touring with GE was the crucible that shaped Reagan's politics, taking cues from high-level management and his conservative handlers, along with his own growing attachment to markets and corporations as the protectors of individual liberty. And of course, his $125,000 a year salary and beautiful house furnished with so much GE gadgetry, they had to install a 3,000-pound switchbox to handle the electrical load, brought Reagan slowly from anti-communist New Dealer to ultra-conservative Republican. In 1961, he recorded an album for the American Medical Association warning about the dangers of socialized medicine in the form of the newly introduced Medicare bill. And by 1964, he was a celebrity spokesman for the Barry Goldwater presidential campaign, stressing small government, lower taxes, and asking in a televised speech if a, quote, little intellectual elite in far-off capital can plan our lives better than we can plan them ourselves. This speech cemented Reagan as a serious politician, and in 1966, he ran for and comfortably won the governorship of California. In this position, he attacked welfare and sent in the National Guard to crack hippie skulls at Berkeley, but also decriminalized abortions and raised taxes despite campaigning against doing so. So that's a sketch of Reagan. Matt, any thoughts on Ronald Reagan, the guy? Ronald Reagan was the the presidential himbo. The himbo's himbo. Uh, in, in a similar way of Harding, where where he is just a vessel for others' ambitions, uh, all Reagan ever really wanted was to be liked. That's basically it to be to be recognized as a, as a good fellow, well met by his by uh, uh, a one and all. Uh, and you can see how he moves politically. Uh, you can see sort of where the center of gravity of like uh, you know of energies are going in 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 uh, politics. During that New Deal era, during that during that time, Reagan's a New Dealer. Uh, when when it's a hegemonic ideology, he's filled with the hegemonic ideology. How could he be any other? Uh, but once uh, the war ends and the right wing reaction begins to build, uh, and a counter current, a cultural counter current emerges that is based around big money, like companies like General Electric, which had made their truce with the labor movement, but were at this very moment creating the intellectual uh, machinery that was going to create the uh, propaganda machine uh, of right-wing ideology that could then uh, become the expression of sort of reactionary uh, discontent with the New Deal order. Uh, And so between his right-wing second wife, Nancy Davis, who came from a family of of Birchite cranks, uh, and the uh, blandishments of the General Electric Company, which took, uh, which gave him a very lucrative job after he basically crashed out of uh, Hollywood. He, yeah. he was a star for a little bit. He never became that big of a star. Uh, and by the early 50s, he had uh, lost any ability to, to get a leading part. Uh, he, even for a short period, hosted a variety show in Vegas. <laughs> uh, that, that's how sort of uh, off the radar he was. Uh, and then he was picked off the dung heap by the this new emergent, vigorous reactionary strain uh, movement, and he becomes filled with that ideology and spends his life making the people in that orbit happy, and, and so and he made them very very happy. <laughs> <laughs> 
And so from here, we've basically covered the rest last week. Uh, He's duking it out, but losing in the presidential primaries in 76. Uh, But then Reagan easily clinched the Republican nomination in 1980. He selected primary opponent George Bush, the RNC chair under Nixon and CIA director under Ford, as his running mate and crushed Carter in the general. So let's get those jelly beans on the Resolute desk. Mommy, yes. <laughs> Mommy. Yeah, he was totally dominated by politically uh, by his wife. Uh, basically, not, not since Edith Wilson has a woman <laughs> had as much power in the White House as Nancy Reagan did. So let's get into the Reagan administration and basically the next 40 years of American policy. And to start, Matt, you covered this a, a bunch at the top of the uh, episode, but maybe you can give just a quick, concise definition here. Once and for all, what the fuck is neoliberalism? Uh, to me, it is a new social contract uh, premised on the uh, reassertion of the uh, pre-New Deal conception of the Constitution as the guiding hand of government. Uh, that meaning that the intervening century of uh, creations of machines of regulation uh, and democratic accountability to mm-hmm. the machinery of American capitalism are going to be privatized and sold off and removed from public dis- uh, uh, debate. Both neither party would campaign on issues related to macroeconomic destiny of the country because a terminal crisis in profitability had finally kicked in to the world capitalist system in the 70s, and it meant that continued upward pressure from wages uh, would be uh, destabilizing and and, uh, uh, essentially uh, a doomsday scenario for capitalism. And so to defend itself, it used its control of the machineries of government that had by that point totally fallen to them and brought a new order. The main centerpiece of it was the a uh, Volcker shock. This is everything else. There's a whole spider's web of deregulation and monetary policy and trade policy uh, that and uh, fiscal policy that come out of this too. But the main pivot of it, the the, the <clears throat> spoke in the wheel, is the Volcker shock. A huge rise in uh, interest rates uh, instituted by the Federal Reserve uh, in the late 70s, which were meant to shock uh, the economy essentially to break. Uh, these this machinery that had been uh, built so so lovingly over the course of the uh, New Deal era and essentially bring people into a a state of disenchantment with government standing before this wrecked machine, uh, but still being asked to participate in a political stru- system, still being asked to uh, per- to perform rituals of consent to this thing. Well, how do you do that in that wreckage? And the answer becomes uh, you Talk about culture. You, you, you build moral visions and you try to enforce them because uh, the material conditions of life are no longer a political question. And the Volcker shock uh, does its work. Uh, and it extends into the Reagan administration. In the first two years of administration, Reagan's administration see a, a significant recession that is popularly blamed on the hangover of the Carter years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and because this new system is being brought into being under Reagan's uh, explicit mandate, he gets associated with all the good parts of it because he is speaking to the people who are benefiting. The people who right. are not hearing that, who are feeling the immiseration, they are further and further from the center of political life. Right. So Reagan got busy instituting Reaganomics, 
the supply-side free market repudiation of New Deal and Keynesian-style economics that had been the consensus for 50 years. And I should say, the, the, uh, the, uh, the responsible Republicans in 1980 were against this. Like George H.W. Bush is the one who called uh, Reaganomics voodoo economics yes. in 1980. This stuff was all speculative. Conventional uh, Republican orthodoxy was, was uh, against the kind of uh, massive cuts uh, in, in taxes that these guys were proposing because they thought deficits were bad mm-hmm. because they believed in, in the balancing act of the Keynesian state. Like the new radicals that are around Reagan are saying, no, no, you have no say in this. <laughs> it's going to happen when it's going to happen. And your job is to put a happy face on it for your base. That is your job. Your job is as PR representatives for one face or another of this process right. as it immiserates everybody at different times. Uh, and so really made, it, it, of course, it ended up being Reagan who was the face of this because he's the only one who didn't have any beliefs of his own. Mm-hmm. Like these other guys actually still thought they, the world existed one way and it would take Reagan and his victories and what happened when he did what he wanted to do to, for them to realize, oh, God, we were wrong. We're in a new world and we are now basically slaves to mammon. In 1981, Reagan signed the Economic Recovery Tax Act, slashing the top marginal tax bracket and slightly lowering uh, lower brackets, as well as steeply cutting estate taxes and business taxes as well as taking capital gains tax rates back to Hoover administration levels. There were later substantial tax increases to cover growing debt, but by the end of the first term, though most Americans saw a tax decrease, the changes disproportionately affected the wealthy. By 1986, the top marginal tax rate had fallen from 70% to 28%. Reagan coupled this with spending cuts focused on dismantling Great Society programs. Programs like food stamps, work training, school funding, Medicaid, and unemployment benefits were all cut. Meanwhile, defense spending was increased. Yes, uh, the, the American economic engine is still a government program. It always has been. It is still military spending. That's never That can't go away. That's what spins the top. It's everything else that gets put on the chopping block. Uh, and it causes instantaneous massive pain across the country as these social supports go away. Uh, but that pain is concentrated in the places where power least resides. Uh, for example, the urban uh, black populations who uh, came to the uh, northern states to work in uh, the new industrial economy last, got the worst jobs, uh, had built up the smallest amount of reserve, had had the, the, the least access by government design to uh, that homeowning dream. But there has still been, uh, over that generation, enough uh, concentration of uh, cultural capital to build a civil rights movement that does win formal uh, equality and formal uh, political citizenship for blacks, but at the exact moment that the social contract changes, uh, which means that the upper reaches of that movement, the 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 uh, nascent black middle class, get bought off. They now get to live in nice houses. They get to send their kids to college, but everybody else gets the stick. Uh, everybody else gets the drug war uh, and uh, the destruction of the urban inner cores. While money and largesse and government subsidy are lauded on the suburbs, specifically the suburbs in the Sun Belt, which becomes the new heartland of America. Mm-hmm. And for them, Reaganomics is uh, prosperity. It's lower taxes. Uh, it's it's a high, higher stock prices for their investments. Uh, and it's more equity. Uh, and for 
uh, those who are outside, it is uh, cut benefits, uh, reduced employment, reduced salaries, and uh, eventually the state coercing you into some sort of uh, condition of uh, permanent poverty. And just as you mentioned the uh, war on drugs, that was established through the 1984 Crime Control Act. Well, not established, but uh, ramped up through the 1984 Crime Control Act and the 1986 Anti-Drug Act. This is when we establish minimum sentencing targeting crack sales and appropriating over a billion dollars for anti-drug and anti-crime initiatives. Uh, this is spearheaded, it should be noted, by the Democrat-led House under Tip O'Neill. Yeah, I mean, obviously there is a big spike in urban crime in the throughout the 80s uh, and drug use and drug sales as a community cries out for any way to save itself in the absence of any of the institutional backings that they had assumed existed until that very moment. And that became part of the uh, Republican sales now, is that they would not only keep your uh, suburb uh, nice uh, and uh, prosperous, they would protect you from scary black criminals, which, of course... The dark irony being that both of these things are generated by the same forces. Mm -hmm. uh, and one is, in fact, at the direct ex uh, expense of the other. This rise in crime, this growth of a hardened criminal class, has partly been the result of misplaced government priorities and a misguided social philosophy that see man as primarily a creature of his material environment. By changing this environment through expensive social programs, this philosophy holds that government can permanently change man and usher in an era of prosperity and virtue. In much the same way, individual wrongdoing is seen as the result of poor socioeconomic conditions or an underprivileged background. This philosophy suggests, in short, that there is crime or wrongdoing and that society, not the individual, is to blame. But what has also become abundantly clear in the last few years is that a new political consensus among the American people utterly rejects this point of view. The American people are reasserting certain enduring truths, the belief that right and wrong do matter, that individuals are responsible for their actions, that evil is frequently a conscious choice, and that retribution must be swift and sure for those who decide to make a career of preying on the innocent. So let's then continue on to uh, the implementation of Reaganomics, which goes into Reagan's actions in regards to the labor movement and, of course, all of this military expenditure. Right. So he said that the labor movement is going to get broken here. The One of the main engines that's going to break it really more than anything uh, stru in structural power is is just the de the, the deindustrialization and the mm -hmm. offshoring of jobs. If you, you can't strike if they're going to fire you all anyway. Right. Like you've lost, you've fundamentally lost a point of leverage that was crucial uh, to uh, the, the, the labor seizing any kind of political power in the first place. So that's gone. But then the formal structure of power, the unions themselves are, are brought into uh, a discipline, basically. Uh, and Reagan's, one of his first acts is to fire the uh, air traffic controllers, the nationwide Union of Work traffic controllers had gone on strike. Uh, and after having endorsed Reagan in the 1980 election against Carter because of how much Carter had antagonized labor unions as part of his neoliberal turn, uh, he fired every one of them. And it led, it was part of a generalized uh, war against unions' ability to exercise their organizing uh, and strike potential. Meanwhile, the government's 
actual money is being spent on massive, massive military buildup. Uh, more tanks, more guns, more airplanes, big boats, and of course, Star Wars. The idea to shoot nukes out of the sky, pure padding of the defense industry. This is the same thing that powered the Keynesian state uh, after World War II, but without the uh, return to the people. All guns, no butter, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, you could get your butter on a credit card. <laughs> yeah, I have a good quote from um, Secretary of Defense Casper Weinberger uh, from around this time, uh, pretty accurately spend it, uh, spinning this out about what their plan was in regards to the international situation in 1984. Quote, their society, he's speaking of the Soviets, is economically weak and it lacks wealth, education, and technology to enter the information age. They have thrown everything into military production and their society is starting to show terrible stress as a result. They can't sustain military production the way we can. Eventually it will break and then there will be just one superpower in a safe world. If, only if, we can keep spending. Gotta keep spending. Gotta keep spending. It's, but yeah, the, uh, the, the heat has to come out of the uh, economy somewhere. It could have come out of the defense budget. It could have come out of the, Keynes, the military state, especially after the end of the fucking Cold War. My God, it could have come out of the state. But there's no political will to uh, 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 assert that. Instead, it comes at the expense of wages. It comes at the expense of the labor share of surplus, the labor share mm -hmm. of profit. That is where the heat comes out of the economy and what helps cool down the inflation. Because the Volcker shock does its work, inflation is permanently broken at this point. Just before we get out of Reagan's first term, uh, because we've been tracking these things, uh, just a few months after taking office, John Hinckley Jr. attempted to shoot Ronald Reagan. Motivated by a delusional desire to impress Jodie Foster, Hinckley shot a ROM 22 caliber revolver, hitting several of Reagan's aides, and one bullet ricocheted off the presidential limousine and hit Reagan in the abdomen. Reagan was severely injured, but quick action at George Washington Hospital saved the president's life. But, like, if this had been a 19th century James Garfield-type situation, Ronnie would have definitely been a goner, given the injuries that he sustained. For those keeping count, this is, I believe, the 10th and last near-miss or successful assassination attempt on a president. If you count the pre-presidency one on FDR and the post-presidency one on Teddy Roosevelt, which we didn't even mention, but that was the one stopped by the folded-up speech in his breast pocket. It'll take more than that to kill a Bill Moose. Yes. But this is the last time uh, so far a president has gotten uh, successfully or near successfully shot at. Uh, you can now find John Hinckley posting his songs to his YouTube channel. So the 1984 election is another huge blowout election that Reagan obviously wins, but it's worth looking at to examine what Reaganism is doing to these parties. After some primary jousting between candidates, including astronaut John Glenn and Jesse Jackson, Carter's VP Walter Mondale gets the nomination. Reagan is virtually uncontested and gets renominated. So Mondale wins there. Uh, his, his win there is the triumph of this new neoliberal, neoliberalized Democratic Party. Uh, in 1984, the opposition within the Democratic Party to this turn was so scattered and disorganized that there's very little real resistance to it. Um, Jesse Jackson is probably the closest thing, and, and his uh, head of steam didn't really come up until 1988. But one of the biggest challengers to Mondale for the nomination, Gary Hart, uh, was thought of as like the the uh, most liberal candidate, like the one who was was the the choice of like the activist wing. And he was all about uh, streamlining government, 
modernizing, uh, rationalizing government, uh, getting rid of uh, 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 cumbersome regulations. Um, And so it was a contest between technocrats. And Mondale, the VP of Carter, who had been the first one of these technocrats, gets the nomination. And he runs against uh, Reagan's tax cuts. And he promises famously to raise taxes if he's elected, which he (laughs) thought, of course, was going to be one of those virtuous, honest things that the that the um, voters are going to credit you for. They're mm-hmm. going to say, wow, you're being honest. I don't like it, but you know what? I want a good man in there. And that's been the Democratic's fantasy of governments ever since, is that they're going to get treats for being goody good boys instead of giving people what they want because they can't admit that they can't give people what they want. They don't have a competing argument. So people forget, though, that his uh, promise to raise taxes was not with the idea that it would go towards rebuilding the shattered structures of the welfare state. He was wanted to use it to balance the budget. That's why he wanted to raise taxes. That was his that was his challenge to Reaganism. And so with Reagan embodying two, you know, the sun-kissed suburbanites, this city on a hill, and the other guy just saying the same but higher taxes, of course he annihilates in one of the most lopsided elections in US history. I mean, the Democrats are running on austerity. The Republicans are running on on a story of prosperity for some. Uh, and the narrative uh, of the de- and as the cities are declining and being destroyed by this, their uh, their destruction is being painted as the tragic result uh, of basically uh, a overly indulgent welfare state spoiling uh, a population. Uh, and it's it's more than enough to to get the people who are still caring about politics at this point uh, to go along with it. Just on that uh, deficits and uh, re- debt reduction thing, it is funny that that is what Mondale was promising, but it is also funny how deeply that ideology penetrates down to the common voter. Uh, this is getting a little ahead of ourselves, but I was trying to look up uh, Clinton's classic I Feel Your Pain line during the 1992 election. Uh, and I was watching a clip that, you know, a, a renowned clip of him displaying empathy during 1992. And of course, we'll get to uh, Clinton's displays of empathy. But the question he was responding to was a young black woman asking all three of the candidates in 1992, how has the federal deficit personally affected you like it has affected me? <laughs> and it is just like it's it's telling that that your average voter at a town hall would be like, I am personally affected by the federal deficit by 1992, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, the deficit now is our new superego. Like, the, mm-hmm. we, we, we have this new political, uh, uh, we have this new social con- uh, contract, this new narrative around it, and now the bad guy well, isn't capital, kind of. Like, it was disguised in terms, but during the New Deal era, it was sort of understood. The, the force telling you what to do uh, was, was money in some way. Now, the, the president knows your boss is a son of a bitch. Exactly. Uh, now it's... The president knows the deficit is a son of a bitch. Exactly. Now it's 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 this um yeah, it's the idea of government overspending, government overreach, the government doing too much, because that is what the deficit is. It doesn't mean anything. The number is meaningless. Mm-hmm. In fact, it is a thing that just reminds you that is supposed to remind you that the government is doing things and it shouldn't be doing them. <laughs> and that means that the Democrats, they can't even argue that we should do things because that goes against this. It's a new morality. It's a new <laughs> fucking it's the tablets from the mountain. <laughs> Uh, and it works as this, like, at a deep level, like, their Democratic politicians have lost elections because they refused to go uh, to to run up the deficit and did it because they 
they really believed in it. Mm-hmm. Like, for, yeah, of course, every fucking incentive in their uh, careers tells them they have to act like they believe that, but they actually fucking do. That's how deeply it is. And yes, it, it permeates all through the social structure because this is the new world where government is the enemy and we're all on our own. But we're all still operating in this same uh, constitutional structure that was built around more social trust. So Reagan wins in an absolute landslide. Mondale only barely carries his home state of Minnesota and D.C., giving Reagan 525 electoral votes, the most any presidential candidate has ever received in a single election. God damn. Just, yeah. Whew. It's still morning in America. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the So, Matt, you wanted to start off this segment uh, on Reagan's second term talking about the culture war. We're seeing in this era the issues we now easily identify with this topic. Abortion rights, gun control, drug use, LGBT rights, quote, family values in general uh, really come into focus. A sense that there were really two Americas defined around increasingly polarizing views on sets of these values. This is also the era of a new satanic panic in America, the idea that every preschool or after-school D&D group was secretly a haven for satanic ritual abuse. Now, that's more culture war adjacent, but the acuteness of that satanic panic, I think, really nicely illustrates the sense of traditional values under attack at this time and the lurking evil in the debauched other. And of course, the most tragic way this played out was the administration's slow response to the emerging AIDS crisis, due in part to the cultural stigma around homosexuality. The Reagan press pool notoriously burst into laughter at early mentions of the disease, and activists would harshly criticize the administration for its slow movement on addressing the crisis. After the disease was first described by the CDC in 1982, it would take sustained activist pressure late into the 80s for the administration to commit significant attention and resources to addressing it. By 1989, there would be more than 100,000 cases and 59,000 deaths from AIDS reported by the CDC. This, this culture war is uh, the inevitable byproduct of people losing control of their lives uh, politically and being totally at the market's whim. Because even if you've got the suburb, even if you've got the home, the world around you is being changed by these forces. Uh, it is destabilizing the social structures. Everything that is solid is melting into air as, mm-hmm. as, as the resistance to capitalism in our institutions is being eaten away, uh, which means you are feeling cultural alienation, anxiety. Uh, also, uh, at the same time, the, eco- the economic foundations are disappearing. Like mm-hmm. the fact that your wages aren't going up is putting a stress on your life that wasn't there before. In, uh, the inflation of the 70s did put stress on people's lives that wasn't there before. They, they might be, be still comfortable enough to have faith in the system as such and their political party as such, uh, but they're still aware of things. Uh, they still feel, mm-hmm. even if they can't express it politically, the result of this uh, economic uh, reordering. And they have to express it somewhere. They have to find uh, a culprit. And it has to be someone else in the cultural firmament. And it is the forces that are culminating around that Democratic Party, which make up a disproportionate amount of the media representation and cultural figures uh, who are trying to spin the um, dissolution uh, of the American economic order uh, to a different in a different direction. Mm-hmm. They, they want a different set of symbols to validate different effects of this. Like we we're saying, women in the workplace. Right. 
if women are going to have to be in the workplace and this new social order demands it, even if they don't want to be there, then how are we to think about that? Right. And the uh, conservative part of the culture war says that this is a diabolical uh, plot to destabilize and destroy the American family. And the, uh, the other side of it, the cosmopolitan, democratic, socially liberal side, the, the international bourgeois side versus the national bourgeois side of the conservatives says, no, this is a chance for women to uh, gain the full autonomy and subjectivity uh, as participants in the market that men had hoarded up until now. Mm-hmm. And then that becomes the terrain of conflict. And that happens with every issue that emerges out of the, uh, the immiseration, the common immiseration of neoliberalism. Uh, and the, the moral majority, which becomes the backbone of the Reagan, uh, Reagan support uh, and really culminates in its influence of the De- Re- Republican Party with George W. Bush, um, is born in the 70s out of these conflicts. Uh, uh, Jerry Falwell starts the moral majority around the issue of the, the, the U.S. government uh, rescinding uh, tax-exempt status to private Christian segregated academies, right. ones that had sprung up in the South after the desegregation of public schools, where a lot of middle-class white people sent their kids to avoid having them go to integrated schools. Uh, and when the government came for their tax-exempt status, it led them into political activity. A lot of people who had previously been apathetic voters became political activists, uh, and they organized around that issue, around abortion, around uh, defeating the Equal Rights Amendment, uh, around anti-communism. Uh, and they became the most potent force of the of uh, organization within the Republican Party. They almost got the nomination from uh, Ford in 1976, and they succeeded at easily uh, fending off a pretty boy, uh, Yale uh, nerd, wasp, mainliner, uh, George H.W. Bush uh, in 1980. And they defined the cultural contours of the decade. And their battles were the battles of the Reagan administration. And we're all cultural. In November 1986, a Lebanese magazine published leaks from the Iranian Revolutionary Guard that the U.S. was defying its own arms embargo by selling weapons to Iran. The Iran-Contra affair is another one of these scandals we could spend hours on, but the quick summary is, the Reagan administration felt it could get leverage over Iran ally Hezbollah to release hostages held in Lebanon through the arms sales to Iran. Proceeds of the sales were then used in CIA operations to arm and train the right-wing Contra rebel groups, who opposed the socialist Sandinistas who had overthrown the Nicaraguan government in 1979. U.S. aid to the Contras through intelligence groups had been explicitly prohibited by Congress in 1984 and 1985. This whole thing blows up into quite a scandal with cover-ups and document shredding and congressional investigations, but Reagan himself remained insulated. Although later one of the key point men of the operation and the guy to take the fall, Oliver North, would write, Quote, Ronald Reagan knew of and approved a great deal of what went on both in the Iranian initiative and private efforts on behalf of the Contras. So, Matt, what's the deal with Iran-Contra? Yeah, Reagan basically got away with it because he told everybody he didn't remember and they believed him. And he boils <laughs> down to there were no tapes. Yeah. Uh, but 
There was also, and this is crucial, nobody looking for tapes. Mm -hmm. And that is the fundamental distinction that we have to deal with, is that, that, Nixon, that Watergate was this partisan operation that was, as soon as it really got into gear, had a real momentum of its own to dig th to the core of the Nixon White House. And it had the press cheering them on. Uh, Iran Contra, there was a sense throughout the entire infrastructure of government and media that there was no point in going too deeply into this. Mm -hmm. uh, and the big reason is everyone understood uh, it was not happening because of Reagan. Mm -hmm. It was not happening because Reagan got an idea in his head the way that Nixon did. Everyone understood that Reagan was speaking for others at every point of his life. And so when he got out there and said, I don't remember, they're like, yeah, that's probably true. <laughs> uh, and so everyone covered it the fuck up. Uh, and it was a obviously a, a grossly unconstitutional crime and, and, uh, and something that would would is like tailor made for an impeachment and removal from office and fucking imprisonment but it was also part of the development of america's cold war foreign policy uh we've seen throughout the uh, post-war era from truman on the creation of this uh parastate this parallel american uh intelligence infrastructure that has very limited accountability to the american voter in any way mm -hmm. uh and we saw that through uh, CIA operations in the 50s and 60s, uh, but, and many of those were revealed in the 70s during the church committee, and that means that there was a spotlight temporarily on those institutions, meaning that you know, the ball had to go somewhere else. The, uh, the, the um, mole had to pop up somewhere else. And so the Reagan administration built a parallel uh, administrative private uh, national uh, intelligence uh, government, unaccountable, even more, even more unaccountable, mm -hmm. uh, run out of the White House, but not at Reagan's, uh, not for Reagan's goals, but for the goals of the national security state writ large. And so in a real sense, it was not a crime the way that Watergate had been. Uh, and it was <clears throat> part of a two-phase strategy for uh, Reagan's foreign policy against the Soviets. So obviously the main weapon of the US, that Reagan wielded against uh, the Russians during the 80s was just the military budget. It was continuing to spend, 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 keeping the gas, keeping the foot on the gas on defense spending and making the Russians keep up mm -hmm. and destabilizing their economy that way. So that's the background for all of this. But then uh, at the level of diplomacy with the Soviets, while Reagan talked a big game, he called him the evil empire. So in your discussions of the nuclear freeze proposals, I urge you to beware the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely uh, declaring yourselves above it all and label both sides equally at fault, to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire, to simply call the arms race a giant misunderstanding and thereby remove yourself from the struggle between right and wrong and good and evil. He did the joke about how he signed legislation uh, to declare the Soviet Union illegal and the bombing would begin in five minutes. <laughs> but, in act, but he was actually conciliatory towards the, 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 the Russians. He held uh, several peace summits with Gorbachev. He gave Gorbachev the, uh, the room to do glasnost and perestroika instead of having to strike back. Because a nuclear war would have been bad for business. <laughs> so, Possibly the ultimate thing that would be bad for business. Exactly. So, of course, he governed. His foreign policy with the Soviets was the precise sort of realpolitik that Kissinger had practiced under Nixon and that Reagan had abhorred under Ford. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but of course, with a militant face. That militant face elsewhere is being expressed in uh, a horrific rain of blood uh, in the <laughs> yes. peripheral world, in the resource world, in the, in, the, in the actual terrain of third world violence. This is a huge escalation post-Vietnam of covert aid to monstrous regimes and rebel groups. Uh, <clears throat> Reagan's anti-communist alliance in the 80s is the Legion of Doom. <laughs> Just think, these guys were all on the same side, and you tell me that these were the good guys, okay? Apartheid South Africa, mm, Israel, all of the military dictatorships of Latin America, from the Cone to, uh, to Honduras, including the evangelical Guatemalan general Efrian Rios Mont, whose forces waged a genocidal campaign against indigenous Guatemalans that killed over 200,000 people. You've got Mobutu's kleptocracy in Zaire. you got Osama bin Laden and the future Taliban in Afghanistan. Oh, and Pol Pot. After the Vietnamese kicked uh, the Khmer Rouge out of power, Reagan uh, recognized them as the legitimate government and supported them with arms and training. Pol fucking Pot. Yeah, see, seems like a bad bunch of dudes to me. But, you know, they were our brave freedom-fighting uh, allies against the evil empire of communism. And, like, forget legitimate, like, forget governments and, and, and rebel forces. How about uh, fucking crack dealers? Mm-hmm. How about the fact that we set up networks of, uh, of uh, cocaine smuggling to fund Central American genocide that ran through all of America's major cities as they were being hollowed out by deindustrialization? Uh, yeah, I would say to that, seems bad. And then, after the drugs are poured into the city... The people who engage in the drug trade to make up for the just devastated economy are then thrown in prison for it. It's a perfect machine. Well, despite all of this, Reagan leaves office with a 63% approval rating, a growing economy, a crumbling Soviet Union. And so, having wildly succeeded in remaking the Republican Party and the entire country under his hardline conservative movement, the old cowboy rides off into the sunset. With, as uh, Matt just outlined, a trail of blood and destruction behind him. Just like every cowboy sings a sad, sad song. Every rose has its George Herbert Walker Bush was born on June 12th, 1924 in Milton, Massachusetts. The Bush family goes back to Timothy Bush Sr., who was an officer in the Revolutionary War, and his maternal grandfather was George Herbert Walker, the president of W.A. Harriman and Company Bank. His father was a senior partner in the, oh, oh, look at this, Brown Brothers Harriman and Company Investment Bank, and who would go on to become a U.S. senator. So young George was born in the mix, as they would say. George grew up in Greenwich, Connecticut, and attended Phillips Academy. He enlisted in the Navy at age 18 and became one of the Navy's youngest aviators in World War II. In August 1944, while attacking Japanese positions on Chichijima, Bush's aircraft was one of several brought down under enemy fire. Bush was able to bail out from the attack while his crew members died in the crash. In total, nine airmen escaped their planes during the attack. Eight were captured, tortured, and it was later discovered to be partially cannibalized by the Japanese. The ninth George Bush was rescued. George returned from the war and settled down with Barbara Pierce, daughter of a magazine publisher, who he'd courted and married during the war. He attended Yale, where he was initiated into the Skull and Bones Secret Society, and was also a cheerleader 
After graduating, George, eschewing the Wall Street career of his parents, lit out to West Texas, getting a job as an oil equipment salesman for a family friend's company. With help from his family, George started up Zapata Petroleum, an oil drilling company. His partner in this venture was Thomas J. Devine, a former CIA member who continued working with the agency using Zapata as a commercial cover and later described as a, quote, cleared and witting commercial asset of the agency. Zapata would later be described by Barron's magazine as, quote, a part-time purchasing front of the CIA and allowed its offshore rigs to be used as listening stations during the Bay of Pigs. In 1959, George moved his operations to Houston. Other intelligence records record contact from a George Bush in Dallas on November 22, 1963, but George would later say he didn't recall where he was on that day. The only person in America. Yeah, the only person in America alive in, on November 22, 1963, who did not recall what he was up to that day. Anyway, Bush got involved in Texas Republican politics and attempted to unseat Democratic Senator Ralph Yarbrough in 1964, running as a Goldwater conservative against Yarbrough's support of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Bush lost that election, but then won election to the House of Representatives. He went for the Senate again in 1970 and lost again. But his support for Nixon over Reagan, who was more popular with the Texas conservatives at that time in the 1968 Republican primaries, got him into Nixon's inner circle and then an appointment as ambassador to the United Nations. In 1972, after his triumphant re-election, Nixon appointed Bush to be chair of the Republican National Committee. Bush steered the Republican Party through the Watergate scandal and was at a point considered for the vice president position that eventually went to Ford. Ford then sent Bush back to China as a kind of de facto ambassador, though because of diplomatic relations weren't fully established, we call it the Liaison Office, which I think is a cool name for something. But in 1976, he gets called back to be placed as director of the CIA. As director, Bush was charged with restoring dignity and honor to an agency that had been seen as compromised through the previously mentioned Church Committee revelations, which had uncovered shit like MKUltra and COINTELPRO. So Bush did that, but you know, the agency was also doing uh, Operation Condor at the time, managing right-wing regimes of terror in South America. So, you know, reputationally, uh, uh, what was known publicly, he, it was a success, but what he was doing in the background, uh, you know, kind of same shit, different day. So Bush tries for the presidency in 80 and loses to Reagan, but gets the VP nod as the respectable centrist Republican. And of course, they win. As VP, Bush keeps a low profile but has also been reasonably connected with a series of organizations and programs surrounding the planning and execution of Iran-Contra while in office. So, like, the H.W. Bush stuff can get a little tinfoil hat, but, I mean, the guy was a spook. What do you make of this, Matt? George Bush really is, like, the, 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 uh, the president who sort of grasped the office, uh, the implications of the office as it was unfolding, uh, and adapted himself to it. He's sort of if the '60s with with Johnson, with Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon, if that's like this titanic battle between like the will uh, to power of like the individual president and the constraints of the office, George H. W. Bush is sort of the, the the Zen master of that process. He he has identified like what the will of the machine is, and then has shapes himself to it. Uh, and so he sought power where it really uh, aggregated in the post-war era. And then, you know, he had personal views. Uh, he was a mainline Protestant square. He was one of those guys who was like more, uh, because he was a refined, cultured, educated person, he had those cultural values. 
He was a, a pretty much a, a middle of the road social liberal, like the Rockefeller Republicans he surrounded himself with. Uh, but he cared more and most about power. Uh, and it's just sort of funny that he had that, that uh, insecurity at his heart that required him to get public validation for it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't enough to get power. He needed to, to have people recognize him wielding it, which is, it's just very, it's kind of sweet and, 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 and it's sad <laughs> that like this absolute reptile is still vulnerable to, to uh, the cry, to the, to the demand for attention and validation uh, because he was not a very charismatic or natural politician. He was a fucking dork. Which made him such good fodder for uh, Dana Carvey on SNL. And none of us want war in that whole area out over there. <laughs> but as commander-in-chief, I am ever cognizant of my authority to launch a full-scale orgy of death there on the desert sand. <laughs> Probably won't, but then again, I might. And he risked every time getting humiliated, and he was humiliated several times during the course of his political career, including having to play second fiddle to a bimbo for eight (laughs) years. But he was willing to do all of it to grab the final brass ring just so that people would notice. (laughs) So that then takes us up to the election of 1988. And I can't believe we're here. It's the first election of my lifetime. Seems like we'd never make it, but damn, I actually remember shit from the Bush administration, as I recalled up top. Bush actually had to fight a bit for this one, despite writing Reagan's huge popularity, uh, which is a funny bit of the kind of eternal humiliation of H.W. Bush. He came in third in Iowa behind Bob Dole and televangelist Pat Robertson. But Bush pushes hard and wins the New Hampshire primary, giving him momentum, which every source I read insisted on mentioning he referred to as the Big Mo. Yep, he just couldn't shut up about the Big Mo. You like me, you really like me. Yeah, so Bush rides the Big Mo all the way to the nomination. Uh, the 88 Democrat campaign is a bit of a free-for-all. It sees uh, moderate Gary Hart with some initial Big Mo of his own, but after allegations of adultery emerge, he drops out, then re-enters, then drops out again. Three-term Democratic senator from Delaware Joe Biden enters the race. Uh, And just a reminder that Joe Biden was already a three-term senator by 1988. Uh, But after being shown to plagiarize a UK labor leader who lost speech, he drops out. What what is the background on that? Yeah, so uh, the labor leader at the time was this guy, Neil Kinnock, who had a speech where he talked about how he was the first member of his family to go to college. He's the first member of his family to do all this stuff, and it was because... You know, he came from miners and it was it was the government. It was the labor government that had gotten it for him. Uh, and he just decided to just say, yeah, that's me. <laughs> and and I think the fact that it was like biographical is why it became kind of a scandal, because he wasn't just taking like somebody's bit. He was telling their life story as his own. <laughs> uh, very goofy. Uh, wonder if we'll see that guy again. Anyway. <laughs> The primaries end up being a uh, duel between Michael Dukakis, Jesse Jackson, Al Gore, and Dick Gephardt. But Dukakis pulls away in the later primaries and won the nomination. And here again, you see the, uh, the, the victory of the technocratic machine of the Democratic Party over its erstwhile base. Uh, because by 1988, the, the last vestige of that New Deal social contract within the party is represented by Jesse Jackson. Uh, and uh, he, his Rainbow Coalition is an attempt to reinvigorate the social democratic uh, tradition of the Democratic Party. But by this point, 
the Democratic Party is no longer building and sustaining this machine, uh, this this uh, order. It's actively destroying it, mm-hmm. and so it is uh, opposed to its outcomes or opposed to its goals. And so it really does fall to someone who is outside of politics to represent it, because inside politics, everyone has gotten with the program. And it makes sense that it was someone from the civil rights movement, right? Because the civil rights movement was the last before the crack up of the seventies was the last attempt to forge a genuine cross uh, uh, multiracial democratic political expression. Uh, That was what Martin Luther King was seeking. And it's what every uh, really every part of the civil rights movement was moving towards in one way or another uh, when the uh, material conditions broke up uh, and the uh, the machinery uh, shut down. Uh, And Jesse Jackson is sort of the the last voice from that generation trying to uh, keep it going. But uh, the, in the end, the the song of the the suburban technocratic uh, electorate uh, that is now in the dominant position of a party that is now being funded more and more by corporate interests uh, than it, and less and less by uh, labor unions, uh, it ends up going to the the technocratic governor of Massachusetts. It's very funny that Dukakis gets thrown in sometimes as part of the far left candidates who lost because <laughs> yes. they were too left. He ran as having been the guy who cut taxes and balanced budgets in Massachusetts. He ran as the guy who would get under the hood and tinker with things. He did not run on anything left. That was Jesse, and he had some success in the primaries. But at that point, the uh, working class was just too shattered by the preceding 30 years of culture war and economic decline. So there's a lot more in this campaign, uh, like Bush's notoriously racist Willie Horton ad and uh, Dukakis's notoriously goofy photo op riding a tank. Uh, But we'll cut to the chase. Bush gets a respectable win with 53% of the popular vote and 426 to 111 electors. George Bush becomes the first sitting vice president since Martin Van Buren to be elected president. So let's see those thousand points of light. after, by the way, not only Iran-Contra had happened in the last Reagan term, but after Bush had been the White House liaison to the whole operation. He was in charge in the White House. He was in more meetings than Reagan was about uh, Iran-Contra, but he was uh, allowed to uh, violate a subpoena for his diary uh, and was able to essentially wait out the investigation, uh, and everyone else was just looking at what, like, looking at what a dork Dukakis looked like <laughs> riding around in that tank. With general economic prosperity continuing, and given his, let's call it, a spooky background, uh, Bush's main focus was international. And the immediate focus was the rapidly crumbling Soviet Union. Starting with the elevation of Gorbachev to General Secretary in 85, then more rapidly with independence movements in the Baltics and Caucasus in 1987 and 1988, the political situation in the Soviet Union was quickly unraveling. The Baltic republics of Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia broke away in 1990, the same year the Berlin Wall came down. Gorbachev slowly ceded power to newly elected Russian President Boris Yeltsin, and on December 25th, 1991, The Soviet flag was lowered on the Kremlin for the last time. Matt, 
What was Bush's position in all of this? The demise of what had been the United States' chief foreign adversary of the 20th century. So uh, Bush, in conventional history, Bush gets uh, credit uh, for uh, having a relatively hands-off relationship to this process, letting it happen, uh, uh, playing his hand coolly. Like, that's that's how it's put down. And and in the sense that he continued uh, negotiating with the Soviet Union, he backed Gorbachev diplomatically uh, and then Yeltsin, uh, but did not, you know, overplay an American hand in, in the domestic politics. Uh, that's true. Uh, but the real key thing that Bush did is that uh, in the immediate after collapse of the Soviet Union, he did not extend to the Russians the Marshall Plan-like reconstruction uh, money that they had all basically assumed they would. They, they really thought that they were going to get bought out of uh, communism. Uh, mm-hmm. That really was sort of Gorbachev's long-term goal, turned the Soviet Union into a social democracy by, by, by being bought out by the uh, West. But the Marshall Plan had been necessary to stave off the Soviet Union in Europe. Mm-hmm. Without, the, the whole point had been to get rid of the Soviets. You're the Soviets. That means <laughs> you collapse and we pl- pick your fucking bones. And we integrate you as subject peoples into our global uh, po- capitalist hegemon. And that was Bush's... A main contribution was to was to let them down easy that they weren't going to get the massive infusion of Western money that they had hoped for, which would set the stage for the absolute looting of the country and the biggest peacetime drop in life expectancy uh, in in history happening under Clinton. So then there is Iraq, Kuwait and the Gulf War. The U.S. had provided financial support and arms sales to Iraq during the Iran-Iraq War of the 80s, but... In August 1990, Saddam Hussein had to betray our generosity and go ahead and invade Kuwait. And as we all know... This will not stand, you know? This aggression will not stand, man. uh, Bush sought authorization from Congress for war against Iraq in January 1991, which he received. Bombing began in late January, and between February 23rd and 27th, coalition ground forces pushed Iraqi forces out of Kuwait. So there's obviously a lot here, and there are other shows that can go much deeper on the uh, blowback between the <laughs> U.S. and Iraq's relationship. But Matt, what do we take away from Bush and the Gulf War? So the good news for guys like Bush uh, with the fall of the Soviet Union is that, hey, we, we have uh, no more global competitor. We can set, our, the, set the terms for uh, our uh, reordering of global power, the new world order. Fuck that, uh, fuck that mutual bullshit that Nixon was uh, on. We don't need to fucking negotiate with these people anymore. We can buy them out for pennies on the dollar. Bad news from this, though, is that there's it undermines the public basis for the permanent war economy we've established since World War II, and that it can't go anywhere because mm-hmm. we're trying to dominate a globe, and that means dominating it militarily. Uh, and so there had to be a, moti- a reason for this giant military to exist. And these, uh, Saddam really offered the U.S., a great uh, just opportunity to, to uh, reestablish a, a modus vivendi for American power. So thanks in part to the Volcker shock, Saddam is uh, not able to continue the, uh, the social spending that had undergirded his regime, even through the horrors of the world of the uh, Iraq war, Iraq Iran war, which was blamed, bleeded, bled them dry. And he was making noises about going and invading this little, pesky emirate uh, right b- below him that he claimed was his part of his country. Hey, so he let us know. He let America know. Hey, uh, what do you think about this? And the United States 
in no uncertain terms, repeatedly told Saddam Hussein that we had no interest in the Kuwait situation and that he could do what he wanted there. And to me, this indicates that they were fucking praying that he would invade Kuwait so that there could be a big charismatic display of American military uh, might and, and, the, and uh, the justification for future exertion of might, specifically in places that are going to be crucial to the energy sector uh, mm-hmm. as, the, uh, as the, the oil continues to flow. And it works dramatically. It's a massive hit. We kill a bunch of Iraqis. Very few Americans die. It's a bunch of cool pictures of, of precision bombs going off. The Vietnam uh, uh, spectrum has been a specter has been banished. Uh, and we got a big parade and we made up for ever being mean to the Vietnamese, uh, the Vietnam uh, veterans. Uh, and it, it was an, it certainly did help maintain that military uh, economy, you know. Like it got us, it got them through to the next quarter, clearly. Uh, yeah. But it didn't actually do the short term work that was, you know, obviously something Bush was considering when he was considering the, the larger picture of getting him reelected. So then, domestically, after an initial strong period, the Bush economy begins to falter. Bush notoriously ran on. My opponent won't rule out raising taxes, but I will, and the Congress will push me to raise taxes and I'll say no and they'll push and I'll say no and they'll push again and I'll say to them read my lips no new taxes but given the deficits the Reagan administration had acquired with their tax cuts and massive military spending increases in 1990 Bush acceded to a budget with higher taxes for top earners in addition to cuts to domestic programs After all the 80s growth, the economy slumped in 1990 and 1991 in a fairly mild recession. And though growth had begun again by 1992, unemployment remained high into the election year. So this is an instance where Bush, operating in his, you know, domestic capacity, is trying to do the cynical good thing of maintaining power. Uh, He thinks, he really believes that you got to, you can't have too many deficits. He really believes this. Like this is this is a thing that isn't ideological to him. This is this is uh, engineering. Like this is a deeper th- belief. So he, even though he's willing to be totally ideologically neg- flexible on every point, oh, I'm pro. He was pro-choice. Oh, we're against abortion now. That's fine. <laughs> yes, he used to be creeped out by a holy rollers, little grubby uh, Baptists r- rolling around in the dirt. Now I'll go hang with them. I don't care. But for this, this isn't a political question. you got to raise taxes if you got too much deficit. And it would only be later that we realized, oh, once you have uh, totally unmoored, you know, money from anything other than uh, the uh, power of a global hegemon, you kind of get to say what you want. Uh, and so he <laughs> goes into reelection, unpopular with his base for doing the thing that was becoming increasingly the sine qua non of Republican domestic politics, which is not ra- uh, avoiding tax raises. Uh, and with a little demand blip, boom, that's all it takes. And he is totally vulnerable to this guy who had like ridden the wave of American power all the way through the post-war world is left totally vulnerable to this fucking hillbilly, this upstart, uh, uh, a revist from the fucking <laughs> provinces coming in. But just before we get out of Bush, I do want to mention the thousand points of light. You want to get out of Bush? You want to pull out of Bush? I want to pull out of Bush. Just before we pull out of the Bush, 
I just want to mention the thousand points of light just because it's like the thing I remember most about Bush, mostly through just seeing clips of Dana Carvey's impression. Uh, it was just Bush hyping America's many volunteer and service clubs and organizations, quote, a brilliant diversity spread like stars, like a thousand points of light in a broad and peaceful sky. So like nice image, but kind of a go out there and fix it yourself message from uh, the president. You know, it's the only alternative to the uh, the social welfare state that you've destroyed. Yeah. You guys better better build something into, and we might help you a little bit, but uh, we're sure shit not maintaining any uh, infrastructure for it. Anyway, by 1992, Bush and the Reagan consensus were showing signs of faltering. The Democrats were still mostly leaderless, rudderless, having failed to find some kind of workable inheritor to their 20th century policies and mandates. If only, if only, Matt, there was some kind of third way. Jefferson Blythe III was born August 19, 1946, in Hope, Arkansas. His father, William Jefferson Blythe Jr., had been a traveling salesman who married Bill's mother, Virginia, in 1943. However, the marriage was proved illegitimate as Blythe had still been married to his previous wife, and Blythe then died in a car accident shortly before Bill's birth, so the whole thing's kind of moot. Virginia then left young Bill with his grandparents to go get a nursing degree, and when she returned, she married a car dealership owner named Roger Clinton Sr. And now Bill is Bill Clinton. That is our second president uh, in re- of recent vintage whose birth name is not the same as his name as president. Uh, uh, Gerald Ford was born Leslie King, as we remember. Yeah, exactly. Bill Clinton grew up in Hot Springs, Arkansas, where there was frequent tension between him and his abusive stepfather. Uh, Clinton was a good student and great musician, eventually getting first chair in the state band saxophone section. That motherfucker loves the saxophone. He does love it. He's good at it. It's not just a, a novelty, too. He was legitimately a good saxophone player, so I, I give him credit. I, I do respect good musicianship. You got uh, it. Yeah. What else is there in the world? Yeah, I read a, a quote uh, from his biography where where he was basically like, I'm good, but I'm not going to be John Coltrane, so I'll give this up and do politics instead. I would love him to be a jazz man. That would be a jazz man. Uh, Clinton pursued politics and law from an early age and even met John F. Kennedy as a delegate to Boys Nation in 1963. And we should bring Boys Nation back as like a um, like a, a name for a state run boy band, like a, a South yeah, exactly, Korea style yes. music po- uh, project. Yeah, we with the new C, uh, uh, with the new WPA, yeah. we should have. Uh, yeah, get that in the new in the Green New Deal. Yes. Uh, Bill attended Georgetown University with scholarships where he was elected class president and graduated with a degree in foreign service in 1968. After graduating, he won a Rhodes scholarship to Oxford University studying for a Bachelor of Philosophy in politics, though he left early to study law at Yale. During this time, Clinton was an active opponent to the Vietnam War, participating in and organizing protests against it. He would vacillate between attempting to join the ROTC to avoid the draft, but ultimately decided against it registering for the draft, uh, but ultimately avoiding it via a high number pick in the lottery system. Though his draft record would become an issue in the 92 campaign, it does appear to have been all above board. At Yale, Clinton met a fellow student named Hillary Rodham, and they soon began dating. After earning his law degree, the couple moved to Dallas to work on the 1972 McGovern campaign, where I saw some sources say that another another staff member they worked with there was a young Steven Spielberg, but I couldn't get that wholly verified, so that, that may or may not be true. 
Also, uh, one of their first dates, they crossed the picket line. <laughs> Very romantic. Then, moving back to Arkansas, where Bill taught law. After losing a race for the House in 1974, Bill ran for and won the position of Arkansas Attorney General in 1976. In 1978, he was elected governor of Arkansas. At 32, he was the youngest governor in the country at that time, though only the second youngest governor in Arkansas state history, behind John Selden Roan, who was a slightly younger 32 when elected in 1849. Clinton lost re-election in 1980, but won again in 1982 and stayed in office for 10 more years. As governor, Clinton became the avatar for the New Democrats, a group organized as the Democratic Leadership Council, advocating centrist policies of smaller government and entitlement reform to counteract what they saw as Reaganism's repudiation of liberal policies. As Governor Clinton focused on a wide swath of education reforms, including raising sales tax to increase school funding and improving teacher competency. He also focused on economic development through tax initiatives and startup money for tech businesses, as well as reinstituting the death penalty in Arkansas. He also uh, looked the other way while they were running mad dope through Mena Airport. Yes. Google Barry Seal. <laughs> so by 1992, at age 46, Clinton had successfully built a growing, if not quite national, reputation as a moderate reformer with results. With 12 years of governing under his belt and was set to finally make a run for the big office. Matt, your thoughts on Clinton the guy? Clinton is... You just your archetypal meritocratic striver. He is he is what the system is forged. Like the post-war order is going to be a meritocracy where merit is determined in universities and is going to be a mixture of legacies, the majority, and some hustlers from the provinces. And Bill Clinton was going to be one of the hustlers from the provinces. But what that meant was he had to shape himself to what power wanted if he was going to be able to get up there. Because for a narcissistic post war boomer subject which we all are personal advancement within the system is the same thing as the system doing good right this is the thing that has to be understood by the democrats who come after the great real neoliberal uh uh shift is that if you want to do good things for people you would not run for office as a democrat <laughs> because you don't get to do that the people who run for office as democrats increasingly as the reality of what it means to be a democrat in this system uh, becomes clear are those for whom making the world a better place is them uh, rising up in it. Mm -hmm. And every uh, Democrat we've had since has been that. It's certainly Barack o Barf Sacco Crumbo, uh, and it is absolutely uh, Billy Boy Clinton. Uh, it's Nixonian ruthlessness and will to power without any of the intended resentment that powers you into like an idiosyncratic attempt to gain individual power. You don't need that. But of course... It's still a very high-stress situation. You're still on tenterhooks, and that means you have to get it out somewhere. And with Clinton, it is being a just horrifying sex demon. <laughs> yes, that is the uh, modern Democratic, a classic modern Democratic pitch, is that uh, by my personal stories, the my rise in the meritocracy, the implication is that I will do that for you yes. as a governor, yeah. governing person. Yes, and and they get to feel that they have uh, that that they have sanctified the because they're going to remember the good they did. They're going to imagine all the all of it that would have not been done by somebody not as competent as them, and then they get to call that extra percentage uh, their contribution to the common good, even though it is far outweighed by the evil that they do every moment of their fucking lives. 
So we'll start the election of 92 with the Democrats. You said, what are my, what is my first political memory? And I said it was waiting for the uh, results of the, the election in my uh, elementary school. Uh, I don't even think it's that. I think it might have been when I uh, was wa- watched an SNL sketch. Mm-hmm. It was a debate sketch called oh, Decision 92, The Race to Avoid Being the Guy Who Loses to Bush. <laughs> this, was, this was early in the year when he was still so it was about a Democratic off primary, of the yeah. uh, Gulf War. And it was, by the way, Clinton wasn't even on the, on there. This is before he had even risen to even semi-prominence in the race. It was, uh, there was uh, Lloyd Benson, who had been Dukakis's VP. Uh, there was Al Gore. There was Dick Gebhardt. There was Mario Cuomo, played by uh, Phil Hartman. But mm-hmm. There was no Clinton. Uh, and it really did, it broke very late. Like, the, 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 the people didn't pay attention until late. And at that point, the economy was still looking bad and this guy was able to seize the moment seize that like southern disaffection for the democrats cuz remember the white south was a very recent addition to the democrat the republican uh, presidential coalition and they were still basically up for grabs uh, and as things came to center on the economy this southerner was able to envision uh, it was able to depict a democratic party shorn of a lot of the uh, racial uh, baggage that had made it a uh, less appealing in the South, but was still directly a pitching towards people's pocketbooks. Uh, mm-hmm. the, it's the economy stupid, as James Carville said. And he was able to uh, defeat Tom Arkin, the labor boy out of Iowa, uh, and uh, the even more meritocratic nerd, top Paul Songus of Massachusetts. Uh, he, he got to, he essentially, the way that Carter faulted to power uh, with a Iowa first place, Clinton kind of did better. He took third place in New Hampshire because uh, Paul Songus from Massachusetts won New Hampshire, but he didn't really get any credit for it because he was from next door. Massachusetts, yeah. But Clinton finished third after having been hit by early scandals like Jennifer Flowers and mm-hmm. and having lost a uh, position and having lost Iowa. Uh, so he got to call himself the comeback kid and everybody else did. <laughs> So, yes, starting the election of 92 with the Democrats, as you just mentioned, Bush was seen as a strong contender and the Democrats lacked high profile leadership. As you mentioned, Clinton emerges from a crowded pack, uh, you know, slowly edging up the early primaries and then, uh, you know, wiping away Harkin and Songus. Clinton eventually swept Super Tuesday and took that momentum into victory at the convention, selecting Tennessee Governor Al Gore as his running mate. That's really one of those double down picks. A lot you really have a choice. You either reinforce your strengths with your VP pick or you make up for your weaknesses. And Clinton's decided to just double down on young and southern. Mm-hmm. Because that's the, all the Democrats really had at that point because they couldn't <laughs> pr- really promise to make anything better for anybody. Uh on the Republican side, Bush and Dan Quayle easily won the renomination, but there would be another factor in the 92 election, a kind of wild card outsider with big ideas and even bigger ears. Matt, do you want to tell us about Ross Perot? Okay, so Ross Perot is uh, the return of the repressed within the Republican coalition. So we talked about how uh, there's been this countercurrent of, like, of reactionary politics around national bourgeois, right? Those who mm-hmm. identify in opposition to international capital, small, relatively small domestic extraction industry and manufacturing types who form the funding source for that early conservative movement, which uh, is embodied in Goldwater and embodied in Reagan, but only to a point. Reagan was very happy to indulge this the uh, cultural grievances of these people, 
but he was much less interested in uh, addressing their real um, economic concerns, which were in contrast to the demands of global capital and sustaining a global capitalist machine. They Mm -hmm. wanted a national capitalism. Now, of course, that's not a thing. It's not a stable (laughs) item. It's not a stable isotope. It collapses. Uh, this the system is now only uh, viable because it is a machine uh, of global trade. That's the only thing that sustains the level of uh, social development in the United States. That's that's it. Right. But the national bourgeois does not grasp this. And by in, and after George Bush spent four years paving the way for a global new world order and negotiating trade deals such as NAFTA, which was not on the agenda between the two major parties. Because both Clinton and Bush, of course, supported NAFTA as part of the general reorientation of the global system and the new social contract that neither one of them could deviate from. It took an independent, a, a billionaire wildcard, a, a computer billionaire named Ross Perot from Texas, uh, who had tried to fund uh, a Bo Greitz-led uh, mission to Vietnam to secure uh, POWs, <laughs> who ran against the Republicans and Democrats as a third party embracing the uh, the social vision of the Republican uh, right wing plus its forgotten uh, economic heart in the form of protectionism and uh, resistance to this new global trade network. Uh, and he um, got in significant support for a third party candidate by yes. far the most since uh, Teddy Rose or since George Wallace. Uh, and, he was able to get to the uh, debates. Yes. Uh, and he he famously said that giant sucking sound you hear is jobs going across the border from the United States to Mexico. There was an understanding that this was happening. But at this point in history, the only group of American political subjects who could be organized effectively uh, around a, re- a resistance to global capitalism was on the right because the left had been annihilated and, and was – did not have the capacity to generate a figure like Perot. The the billionaire and millionaire-led right wing can always do that. They can throw up somebody who can spend that money, and Perot did, and he attracted this countercurrent. Uh, and he was doing very well. He had like a third of the vote in most polls before he pulled out in the middle of the campaign, uh, claiming that the Republicans had compromising photographs of his daughter that they were threatening to put out. But then if he, a little while later, he went back in the race and, uh, and his numbers never quite recovered. But he did, he did pretty well. He didn't win any states, uh, but he, did, he was a consistent thorn in the side of Bush. Although the argument could be made, though, that people voting in, a, in an election with an incumbent, if they're voting against the incumbent, it's because they don't want them to win because they've been president. Mm-hmm. And that suggests that a lot of those votes, if not a majority, that went to Perot would have gone to Clinton, even though Perot represents this like right wing strength. Right. But either way, uh, Clinton is able to deal with that boon to his campaign. Yeah. So Perot's entry into the race was indeed a big deal. And as Matt just mentioned, did by June 92, he was leading both the major party candidates in national polling. Uh, but yeah, the dropping out of the race thing and just kind of his essential goofiness. Slow and yeah, there re-entered. was a media war against him. He's a big eared galoot because he wasn't yeah. a politician. Yeah, and the media is 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 designed to reject non politicians at this point. Like it, yeah. it's like a white, it's like a regardless of political party or ideology, your uh, white blood cells just 
kick into gear when you see somebody who has not done the work to get there, who's coming yes. in from the sidelines. And, you know, he was like with the big Texas accent and, you know, the charts and stuff. Or are the charts his 96 run? I think it was charts both times. Yeah. This getting television specials where he points at a big whiteboard with charts. Anyway, his lead slowly whittles away. And uh, for Clinton, despite a tough primary season, uh, dipping Clinton's appeal, he gets a huge bounce in the polls from a strong convention showing one of the biggest post-convention polling bounces in uh, modern history, um, in addition to the economy under Bush continuing to show weakness. Uh, do you want to go in on any of this, or should I just continue? It's just a cool guy versus a nerd. Yeah. That's what it is. They're both going to yeah. do basically the same one. One of them can empathize with you and make you, you think that he believes you because he's cool and uh, plays a saxophone and, and touches his finger and bites his lip and has done all the things that his generation has learned to appear to, to, to give the impression of uh, empathy and humanity. They've learned from being under that panopticon of the boomer era. I, I have seen what's happened in this last four years when in my state, when people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. And I've been out here for 13 months, meeting in meetings just like this, ever since October, with people like you all over America. People that have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, lost their health insurance. What I think we have to do is invest in American jobs, American education, control American health care costs, and bring the American people together again. It's a different kind of acting than yes. from what um, Reagan exactly. has. Uh, Bush, was, Bush learned how to... To, to be a, a, a fancy man in a suit in a, in a boardroom. And he uh, looked like he had no sympathy for anybody. He checked his watch during one of the debates. That became a huge scandal. Oh, didn't know how credit card readers worked at the grocery store? Yeah. And if that's the case, if you've got a soggy economy and one guy who might not have that many plans to make your life better materially, but who at least seems like he gives a shit, versus a patrician dork who looks like he's completely checked out, uh, Clinton won. Lacking any ground on the economy, Bush and Perot constantly sought to bash Clinton on issues of character, his supposed draft dodging, his marijuana use. Remember, this is when Clinton claimed he, quote, did not inhale, and, of course, his infidelity. But in the end, Clinton ekes it out, winning 370 electoral votes to Bush's 168, claiming a wide geographic swath of states. And as Matt was mentioning, the electoral map from this period is one of the more interesting ones in a recent history because... Uh, he's winning in the Northeast, the South, the Upper Midwest, Mountain States, and the West Coast, basically all over the country. Uh, though, it must be noted, winning only 43% of the popular vote due to Perot's kind of staggering 18.9% of the popular vote total. And so, Clinton heads into the presidency, and we have this little scene. Yeah, uh, so Clinton gets into a meeting uh, with his advisors, and he uh, is he does have some pitch to the regular American person, uh, and it is middle-class tax cuts. Once again, if all you can do is pull the lever on taxes, pulling it a little higher for rich people and a little lower for poor people, or for middle-class people, rather, because, of course, the poor are paying taxes, so fuck them. Uh, you can at least look like you're doing something for something, somebody that they might credit you for. Uh, that, that might be good politics, and actually, you know, if it makes, you easy, it, makes it easier for you to sleep, it might, might make people's lives a little bit better. Uh, but he was pretty firmly informed that he had to make deficit reduction a major uh, theme because the bond vigilantes would fuck him up, that U.S. bonds would become too expensive uh, and uh, it would undermine the economy. And Clinton famously said, you mean to tell me the success of my of the program and my presidency relies on a bunch of fucking bond traders? 
And of course, there are antidotes to that sort of uh, capital discipline, like, I don't know, uh, labor unions, mass movements, uh, actual democratic uh, activism. But at this point, the Democratic Party is just a uh, elite brokerage firm among elite brokerage firms. And Clinton, even before he starts, is pretty well disciplined towards what he's going to be allowed to do. So then, here we are at the end of history, the true beginning of the 1990s, the last decade. We've got a burger-loving, jolly Arkansan leading us into this techno-utopia where everyone has their consumption apparatus, everything's growing, everyone has jobs, we've got the Super Bowl commercials and one major celebrity trial a year to give us all our late-night jokes and memes. Yeah, the second... The second high point of American culture, like the, the second bounce of the dead cat. Yes. And then here's Clinton on top, triangulating the shit out of everything from the culture war to welfare to the economic reimagining of the world. And he's managing all of this publicly from his own performance of empathy. This is where we'll say, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I feel So let's dive in. We should start with NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, a deal that had been in the works since Reagan, negotiated under Bush and signed by Clinton in December 1993. So this is a bipartisan project of three administrations, a deal that has before and after been the subject of intense discussion and many recriminations that Clinton usually ends up getting the sole credit slash blame for. So what is the deal with this deal. So NAFTA creates a free trade zone in North America, which uh, in practice has the effect of filling uh, m- the Mexican uh, agricultural market with high- heavily subsidized American produce that destroys their native agricultural economy and creates a influx of recently dispossessed Mexican former farmers now forced to sell their labor uh, and therefore forced to become a a further reserve army of cheap labor for the American domestic economy. Uh, Because as I said, if we're going to keep profit levels up, we have to keep wages down. And this is a perfect mechanism for doing so. It enriches American agriculture. uh, It enriches American domestic employers. And it lowers uh, manufacturing costs across the board. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it creates the, uh, it it begins the creation of a a corridor of uh, maquilladores, they're called. Uh, That's probably terrible pronunciation, but... Uh, factories directly across the Mexican border for the production of uh, goods. And it has the effect of, as even Democrats would admit, costing a lot of well-paid, in many cases formally unionized, uh, manufacturing jobs in the United States. The promise that Clinton and the Democrats gave is that those uh, losses would be gained by cheaper domestic goods. Mm -hmm. If you're not going to get higher wages and consumption is still all, We've cut your taxes X. We're not, we can't cut your taxes that much more to give you that much more money. We can make things cheaper for you. And so therefore your money goes a little farther. You can buy a mm-hmm. few more things with it. And this is part of that. Uh, and if there were some workers who didn't have a job now, it's okay. They would be retrained. Right. That was the, that was the carrot at the end of the stick was that they would retrain all of these uh, laid off laborers. And of course that ended up being nothing but some, uh, a, a bureaucratic uh, ass covering uh, because what happened is is that millions of Americans who had uh, depended on stable, uh, well-paying jobs in the manufacturing sector are now forced to compete in a new uh, terrain where jobs are in the service sector 
or mm-hmm. increasingly in the knowledge economy that requires an education that none of them had secured. Right. Uh, and that reality causes now a further decline among the American population. People who had gotten and maybe had even accepted the deal under Reagan are starting now to feel under Clinton uh, the deal turned sour. But of course, because they're only arguing in the cultural firmament, it's never brought up. The, the actual cause is never identified uh, until it's far too late. In September 1994, Clinton signed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which was shepherded through the Senate by, oh, it's Delaware's Joe Biden. The bill responded to the continued perception of -of out-of-control crime by expanding budgets for prisons, providing for new police officers, expanding gang-related sentencing, three-strike sentencing provisions, and offering grants for states enforcing tough mandatory minimum sentencing. While also enacting a federal assault weapon ban, this was also coupled with the Brady Bill requiring background checks for gun purchasers. So, Matt, what's going on with the continued war on crime? So, the immiseration of the uh, uh, urban black community is that it was beginning in the 60s, honestly. That's that's when deindustrialization really starts, uh, is, is fully cored them out. And uh, as a result, you know, social uh, consent to to the, the current regime uh was at an all-time low and alienation at its at its height. And of course that leads uh to people seeking to uh survive outside of the dictates of the social order. Uh and the crime bill was a way to replace that deficit of consent with a new apparatus of con- coercion that would do the work of keeping people uh in line enough for business to go along uh as needed. And the 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 Democrat and Republican parties over this period create a a dense infrastructure of legal mechanisms to ensure uh, that uh, any sort of deviance in criminality, uh, uh, divergence from consent uh, in the uh, uh, these communities is met with a brutal uh, police response. Uh, And it has the effect of keeping a lid on things, which is really all that can be done while also. Uh, creating new communities of uh, of patronage around uh, this new mushrooming of prisons across the country, which mm-hmm. create uh, opportunities uh, for economic advancement in the white hinterlands, which are growing also alienated from a system that is seeing them increasingly dispossessed as well as the industrialization increases. In 1994, as conservatives continued to come to the Republican Party, Republicans won landslide electoral victories, winning control of the House of Representatives for the first time since 1952. Under new majority leader Newt Gingrich, the Newt, Newt one of the best uh, pairings of name with guy yeah, in American political history. And also like general soul. Yeah. Like he looks like a Newt Gingrich. He sounds like a Newt Gingrich. His soul is Newt Gingrich. Yes. Uh, the 1994 Republican Revolution would shape the rest of Clinton's term. So the Republican Revolution is, the, uh, is a fundamentally a realignment what it, because the Democratic Party had dominated and been the natural uh, party of government in, the, um, in, the, in Congress since, the, since 1934. I mean, there are a few brief interregnums of control, but you have an almost interrupted period of domination. And it was predicated on a ge- uh, a geographically uh, diverse coalition of forces: southern whites, northern mm-hmm. uh, laborers, and uh, liberals. And the tumult of the '60s and '70s put in- intense stress on that alliance. And then the 
the jettisoning of uh, materiality from politics that happened in the 80s and, and 90s uh, and its replacement with cultural grievance did the final work of shattering it. And by 94, that Democratic um, majority that had sort of stifled uh, in some ways Reagan and Bush was held together with basically uh, habit. Many of these uh, seats were Southern Democratic seats where people voted for the Democrat because they had always voted for the Democrat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their culture war uh, interest in politics was maybe limited to the national stage. But uh, Newt Gingrich helped localize the culture war uh, Mm -hmm. and make people vote their cultural preferences. And that meant that you saw wholesale uh, slaughter of Southern Democrats and they're replaced by a new core of ideologically motivated culture warriors for the Republicans. Uh, who are now dedicated to an uh, adversarial and confrontational uh, attitude towards power that the previous Democrats or Republicans would have eschewed because they were trying to get something done, you know? Mm-hmm. Now there's nothing to do but culture war, which means that there is no more uh, institutional investment. And so the Gingrich's Republicans start doing things that previous uh, regimes uh, of congressional Republicans or Democrats would never have occurred to them to do. <laughs> uh, and and it starts this ratchet effect, this asymmetrical radicalization that defines the parties from that point on. Clinton desired to reform welfare, believing welfare had recipients, quote, trapped in a cycle of poverty and found allies in Republican Congress after 1994. After seeking a compromise deal with the Republicans, Clinton ultimately accepted their plan, terminating aid for families with dependent children and replacing it with temporary assistance for needy families adding stricter work requirements and instituting limits on benefits. So if the state now becomes for people who are observing it through uh, the the lens of culture, uh, only its negative attributes, if you can only see the state as doing bad things, then at this point, one of the only things it still does for poor people is just give them money. Mm -hmm. It's one of the very few things it still does. Everything else got cut. They still give them money. And so that look through this political lens becomes a sin. Mm-hmm. And it becomes this indulgence, this thing that keeps people in poverty. Now, it's either now a lot of the people who said that were just racists who hated the idea of black people uh, who they imagined to be the majority of recipients of welfare, even though they weren't. Mm-hmm. They were the face of it in their mind. Uh, but other people genuinely thought at this point, well, um, if the state is only doing bad things, then clearly this welfare is bad for them. Uh, and so there was a bipartisan consensus to reform it. And it did see a huge drop in welfare recipients, and people thought it was a huge success. And, uh, and of course, there was also, coincidentally, a poverty reduction that was happening because of the swelling of the, 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 uh, the bubble economy of the time. But at the same time, deep poverty was increasing because people who were getting off the, falling off these rolls were having a very difficult time uh, avoiding dissenting completely out of their ability to function. Uh, mm-hmm. And it became something that, uh, over time has, has deepened systemic poverty uh, in uh, every uh, systematically disadvantaged part of the country, and especially in uh, uh, black uh, urban areas. We all know that the typical family on welfare today is very different from the one that welfare was designed to deal with 60 years ago. From now on, our nation's answer to this great social challenge will no longer be a never-ending cycle of welfare. It will be the dignity, the power, the ethic of work. Today we are taking an historic chance to make welfare what it was meant to be, a second chance, not a way of life. 
In both terms, Clinton would preside over deregulation in key sectors, specifically telecoms and banking. Clinton would sign the Telecommunications Act of 1996, significantly deregulating the telecoms industry, ostensibly to foster competition and new entry into the market, but practically facilitating mergers and consolidation. Clinton would also oversee repeal, the repeal of key provisions of Glass-Steagall, allowing banks to avoid federal oversight and deregulating derivatives trading in 2000. Yeah, like everything that had been put in place after the Great Depression to stop that from happening again, they just got rid of. They took off all the brakes mm-hmm. uh, because with a declining rate of profit, there, uh, and there is a constant seeking of new avenues and deregulation of banking allows for new investments. And that that's good for capital. And it's good for, in the minds of a lot of these voters, uh, regular people, because, hey, this means that my stocks are going to go higher. Uh, and what they have the effect of doing is in banking, setting up the next catastrophe, the next massive uh, 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 overproduction crisis that's going to happen in 2007 and 2008. Uh, and then culturally with the Telecommunications Act, ensuring that uh, we create a, a totally monopolized public space uh, where a f- very few number of corporations have basically dictatorial control over our uh, access to the world around us as mm-hmm. it's replaced, uh, as our like day-to-day lives are, are replaced by media, uh, media interpolations. Uh, and so Clinton here is really setting up the stage for every uh, miserable, uh, every every institutional collapse that we are currently living in the ruins of is set up here uh, by Clinton. A brief hit on social issues. Uh, Clinton notably enshrined the don't ask, don't tell compromise uh, on gays serving in the military. That would result in eventually about 10,000 service members being ejected from the military after they were revealed to be gay while also denying federal recognition to same-sex marriage in the 1996 Defense of Marriage Act. Yeah, so this the, the gays in the military is Clinton's big first-term attempt at justifying his existence for liberal voters, basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have decided that they are going to uh, hang out to dry uh, the, the uh, black part of their coalition, which is fine because the new, uh, the new vote to be scrounged for is in the suburbs. So that's fine, but they have to show something. They have to show all those college professors something, some reason to vote for them. And it becomes uh, on behalf of the gays who are, you know, hey, you probably know some gay people. You probably don't know that many black people. Uh, You might even have some in your family. And Mm -hmm. so it's a lower political cost, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it still it still had a huge backlash uh, and it still was a huge fiasco. And it was really the end of Clinton even like offering token shit uh for the uh the liberal wing and from that point on uh it was really the uh the the rise of newt was the biggest gift that clinton could have gotten because clinton because newt gave clinton a boogeyman mm-hmm. and after the failure of uh of the gays of the military the clinton really spent the rest of his term uh very much soft peddling social issues but always pointing to the republicans as mm-hmm. as as demons as neanderthals needed to be defeated and allowing that to stand in for issues uh, on issues where he didn't want to spend any political capital. So that's the main stuff that gets passed under Clinton, especially under the first term. But let's look at the big bungle healthcare. Clinton made healthcare reform a priority in 1994 and put his wife, Hillary, in charge of a task force for coming up with a new plan, which turned into a controversial decision in its own right. Uh, the giving of a first lady, the the executive oversight over a planning committee. Uh, 
navigating between more liberal calls for federally administrated single-payer health care and a Republican-backed idea for a kind of government mandate to require individual purchase of insurance. I don't know. Does that, does that sound familiar? Uh, the eventual plan would uh, triangulate between these two, expanding employer-based insurance, uh, offering plans provided by regional alliances in each state, and provide subsidies for the poor and expand government regulation setting minimum benefits various plans could provide. Facing united Republican congressional opposition as well as massive op- opposition from insurance industries, Clinton would simply abandon the plan in the fall of 94. Matt, what went wrong? Well, the a privatized healthcare system in an advanced democracy is uh, not sustainable mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a long uh, trajectory because costs will explode at a way that becomes unsustainable for a society to, to carry out, to uh, absorb without essentially having a revolution. Because if you can't not die, you are not part of a polity, you know, yes. <laughs> uh, it cannot be uh, left to the market uh, and it cannot be subsidized. A uh, private profit cannot be subsidized because that means that it is essentially an uh, unlimited subsidy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that has been the goal of, of the state apparatus itself in the form of, you know, the parties that are loyal to it and the bureaucrats who are loyal to it to find some sort of uh, accommodation. Uh, Truman tried to fulfill the new deal with a fully uh, a nationwide healthcare system. But, you know, in, in that moment of reaction, he was unable to do it. He was fighting his own left wing. So how could he mm-hmm. do it? Uh, uh, Johnson tried, but even at his apogee of power, he had to sacrifice nationwide uh, coverage to get the most expensive people covered. And that was key because you got to cover old people or you're going to have some problems because they're going <laughs> to literally be dying in the street. They need a lot of fucking health care. Yes. But the, the, the post Medicare Medicaid uh, pact is, is a ticking time bomb and the Clintons and uh, the Democrats try to uh, address it finally. Uh, and they're at that point, they have so, you know, deracinated the party that, all they have is this bureaucratic mishmash of things that is abstractly cheap healthcare, but at the same time is all this other stuff and uh, is unable to gain like a popular support. Meanwhile, it is able to generate a massive response from the healthcare industry that is able to direct media attention to fight it. Uh, and that's the thing. It's like, even if the entire array of capital is on the side of uh, universal health care because it, it, in a moment of crisis or whatever, it's necessary to maintain the structures of, you know, uh, governance that capitalism depends on the uh, healthcare industry will still fight it. Mm-hmm. It will go down uh, flailing and have to be destroyed because they are existentially threatened right. by uh, healthcare reform in a way that other sectors of the economy aren't. And so even though it probably would have been for the, good of the general project of the American capitalist state to fucking fix this thing, then uh, there's no will to do it that can exceed the will of the unified uh, healthcare industry and its influence in media. The Clinton administration notably intervened along with NATO in several crises in the Balkans, Bosnia and Kosovo specifically, and elsewhere in places like Somalia, uh, but not sure how much we want to touch here. Seems mostly like the U.S. imperial machine searching for a purpose in a post-Soviet world. Yeah, so uh, 
George H.W. Bush started the process of building a new uh, d- uh, justification for America's military economy. Clinton, of course, had no interest in challenging the, the American military economy, but it, it lacked during his term a public justification. And uh, it was essentially just ignored uh, while we argued about other shit. Uh, but that did, that it still had to do something, and the thing it did was try to assert the dominance and the and the validity uh, of NATO in a post-Soviet world. Even though the idea of NATO post-Soviet Union is absurd, mm-hmm. it was there to counter the Soviets. They're gone. Why do we still need it? Bosnia and Serbia. That's why we still need it. Uh, and of course, Clinton also kept his eye on Saddam uh, and initiated several bombing attacks against uh, uh, Iraq during his presidency. Uh, keeping that, you know, uh, uh, that engagement live. But uh, it was sort of an embarrassment. It was sort mm-hmm. of a sad uh, thing, and it definitely needed some sort of resolution. But uh, <laughs> Clinton never had to deal with that. But but there was going to definitely have to be a reckoning with a world where there was this massive U.S. military machine that was really hindering its domestic uh, potential uh, and no real reason for it to exist. And Clinton basically papered over it for his whole term. So that is a big chunk of Clinton-era policy. But I think these are important to run through since these domestic policy developments set up a huge chunk of what we'll be talking about throughout the rest of this series. Uh, These are basically the terms of the modern debates over domestic policy as well as culture issues. Uh, So then, now, let's touch on the election of 1996 which is probably the least consequential election of recent history. Bill Clinton and Al Gore received the Democratic renomination easily. On the Republican side, a crowded Republican field winnowed down to Arizona Senator Bob Dole, as well as 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 millionaire flat tax advocate Steve Forbes and paleoconservative cultural warrior Pat Buchanan. After Buchanan won some shocking early primaries, establishment Republicans rallied behind Dole, and he got the nomination. Uh, this campaign is fairly boring, and Clinton wins decisively. So, Matt, what's the takeaway? You know how ev- nowadays every election is the most important election of all time. Mm-hmm. There is one that you can say definitively that was not true of. It was the, the election of 1996. It was the most low intensity, low urgency election of uh, my lifetime. Uh, one where there was no real ideological distinction on display of any kind. Uh, the closest thing that uh, the Republicans could conjure was uh, some vague culture war uh, grievance, but they couldn't even really uh, define it in more terms visceral than movies are too violent these days. <laughs> I mean, that's very, that's, very that's old man yells at cloud issues. That's the kind of heat we're talking about. Yeah. Like stuff that your grandpa gets mad about. Like that, that's, that's all they were able to muster domestic, uh, uh, culturally and domestically. They had, and uh, foreign policy wise, they had no case they had nothing to run against nobody cared about domestic issues or foreign issues of any kind everyone was checked out post-soviet union um and domestically everything the republicans had been demanding that they do had they had done they reformed (laughs) welfare they uh they increased penalties uh for criminals they uh they did everything and of course the stuff that maybe people wouldn't have liked like nafta they weren't going to talk about because the republicans also wanted that uh uh bob dole was stuck doing some pretty sad gimmicks to try to get anybody to care about any of this. He, uh, he campaigned like for like 48 straight hours or something towards the end. Uh, he resigned his Senate seat to show how serious it was. Mm -hmm. Um, and he ran on a 
15% across the board tax cut. That was his signature domestic issue. Uh, But Clinton was able to say, hey, we got this. We're building a bridge to the 21st century. Uh, And so with trade and, you know, uh, labor, the size of the military, for all that monetary policy off the table, it was really about do we want four more years of the horny cool guy (laughs) or four years of your angriest grandpa? Uh, The only thing I remember about this election is Bob Dole speaking about himself in third person. And uh, Perot, and to show how distorting the political process is to our understanding of the world around us, Perot shows up to run again in 96. Now, he should have been able to say to people, I fucking told you so about NAFTA. Mm -hmm. But all that stuff is happening at a subterranean level and is not being expressed in any way by media or either party. So he's just like, oh, that's the mayor of Munchkinland. Come back to have another (laughs) uh, 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 another bite of the apple. And he uh, gets barely any votes this time, although he still uh, denies Clinton enough votes that he never gets a majority. Poor Clinton never gets 50 percent of the vote. So then on to Clinton's second term. But let's uh, maybe take a moment here to look at where we are with the parties and the general array of forces. Uh, Because Clinton is governing from the center, deregulating, easing the flow of international capital through trade deals, reforming welfare into work requirements, feeling on even modest health care reform. You know, as you just mentioned, the last election, there was barely any difference between the parties. If Clinton is doing the job of capitalists so well, why are the Republicans so mad at him? Because for the the lives of the average Republican voter are still shitty. They're, they're, things are getting worse, slowly, steadily, but but in a way that it is felt in life. And they have to have someone to blame for it. And it, and it has to be the Democratic Party. And, it, and therefore, it has to be the figure of Bill Clinton, who stands in for all of the cultural change that has happened since the 60s that they resent. He is a one man. He is a... Um, he is an avatar of the 60s. And once again, in SNL, they did a, a, a debate sketch in 92, uh, and they showed what each of the candidates saw when they looked at the other candidate. And when George H.W. Bush looked at Clinton, he saw him uh, with a headband and a tie-dyed shirt with a big plume of pot smoke coming out of his mouth. Uh, that was how they saw Clinton, as everything that had changed culturally that they didn't like. And everything that honestly, everything that had changed materially that they didn't like but couldn't put a name to. Uh, and so they had there had to be somewhere to put that anger, and the Republicans were there to channel it into the person of Bill Clinton. Well, speaking of the person of Bill Clinton. The member of Bill Clinton. The member of Bill Clinton. Then there was the blowjob. The ultimate moment of a president's lifelong horniness catching up to them in a spectacular way. We went over some of the broadest details of this at the top of this episode. And again, this scandal is a wildly complicated and wildly interesting slow burn of personal intrigue, leaks, investigations, and indictments. In the end, the House passed two charges, a perjury charge in Clinton's deposition in the sexual harassment case from Paula Jones, and a second obstruction charge in Clinton's attempt to conceal his relationship with Monica Lewinsky. So here's Clinton the second president impeached in the House after fucking Andrew fucking Johnson, who just as a reminder was brought up on the Tenure of Office Act for trying to remove Edwin Stanton, a radical Republican, for support of congressional reconstruction. Just some, like, context here in the stakes of our two big impeachment (laughs) uh, crimes. So anyway, Matt, the blowjob, what's the takeaway? Oh, boy. So uh, the Clinton indictment is the product of uh, a 
determined project, a, a, a right-wing media operation, a right-wing conspiracy, as, as uh, Hillary Clinton said, that was designed to bring down the Clintons. Uh, and it's because what else are you going to do with your time if you're a Republican <laughs> uh, operative at this point is to personally vilify and destroy Democratic poet- politicians because that will help the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. That's that's the that's the thought process behind the whole thing. Uh, and it was called the Arkansas Project. And it was uh, funded by uh, a billionaire named Richard Mellon Scaife. Who's uh, kind of a, as I was reading about him, a J. Jonah Jameson type figure who's uh, you know, a billionaire sitting behind a te- desk screaming at operatives, give me photos of the president getting head. Yes. And so they were doing a four, full port court press during Clinton's presidency through the courts to try to get uh, some sort of investigation of him. And they, their big spark was this Whitewater scandal, which is a very boring and complicated land deal that happened in Arkansas when the Clintons were in the governor's office. Uh, and the model for this is the same as it's been since uh, wa- uh, since Watergate. If uh, enough people in the media start complaining about something, uh, the, the government will appoint a independent prosecutor to see about it, just to get people to shut the fuck up. Uh, it happened uh, with Watergate. It happened under Iran-Contra. And because of this whole dogged media apparatus to get this stuff public, Whitewater became a thing people knew about, even if they didn't understand it. And mm-hmm. so the Clintons appointed a independent counsel, this guy, Ken Starr. And so these guys go through everything to get something on the Clintons about this land deal, but it's too boring and complicated to even care about. There's no smoking gun. But in the course of spreading money around Washington and, and telling people to keep their ears up, they get a hold of information from Linda Tripp, who is a Republican operative who is friends with this White House intern, Monica Lewinsky, uh, who is having a dalliance with the president and it unspools a uh era defining drama the ki- i don't want to get to kids today but the kids today cannot grasp the the enormity of this thing donald trump was impeached twice mm-hmm. nobody remembers anything about either of those things those events have completely lost uh, they, they barely people are barely paying attention when they were happening and they were completely forgotten about as soon as they stopped this thing consumed the nation for over a year. It was mm-hmm. the only topic of conversation. It was the only topic on late night television. Did you see Monica's new hairdo all slicked down with that hair gel? At least I think it was hair gel. <laughs> <laughs> the number one possible first line for Monica Lewinsky's new book, Me and My Big Mouth. Conan, conversations with Monica tended to be a little one-sided. Uh, she... She wouldn't say much. She really couldn't say much. Top story, nightly news, every single night. It was product of this now extinct media model uh, where like, there was a thing that happens every day. And the thing that happened every day for this entire year at the end of his presidency uh, is, year plus at the end of his presidency, is the blowjob he got. Because holy shit, the president got a blowjob. <laughs> this is a big deal. This is... This is the personal. This is the spectacleization of politics. It's mm-hmm. not just culture war shit. It's also soap opera shit. Yeah, this becomes a thing we can all care about instead of a politics that is otherwise completely on rails. And we get to argue about it forever. And then he gets to get acquitted because of the partisan makeup of the uh, of the Senate and the partisan nature of the conflict. Uh, and no one cares. They were very entertained. In fact, I think that one of the reasons that Clinton leaves office with such an absurdly high approval rating, 
some of them had them near 65%, is that everybody had had such a good time. <laughs> everybody had had such a good time enjoying. I mean, like that was a hell of a show, Bill. Before we move on from the scandals, I will just say that Whitewater does have a uh, special place in my heart because uh, one of the Whitewater operatives who got an 11th hour um, pardon from Bill Clinton is a guy named Chris Wade, uh, who is the first of two Chris Wades, two different Chris Wades who have gotten an 11th hour pardoning pardon from an outgoing president. The other one was some Trump operative who he pardoned. So I'm <laughs> looking forward to uh, one day, someday getting an 11th hour pardon from some president. I, I'll uh, pardon com- you. I the promise tri- to pardon trinity. you, Chris. When I, when I get elected, just go hog wild. Yeah. I do will any do credit card crime. crime you want. Just know you're, you're going to get free. It might be the last day of my, of in office. I don't want to, you know, get too much. Yeah, yeah. Blowback, no, it has but, to be the last day. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, absolutely. Uh, a blank check. So then, as Matt mentioned, even with all this, Clinton leaves office with an absurdly high approval rating, often at near 65%. Clintonism appeared tarnished, but vindicated. And so we go on to the election of 2000, the dawn of a new millennium, looking at a popular president and his popular policies. The Democrats had now successfully co-opted the Reagan and Bush era appeals to law and order, individual responsibility, and financial stability. They balanced the budget. They balanced the they budget. They did the thing we that had a Republicans surplus. have been asking to be done since the 50s. They balanced the goddamn budget going out the door. The Democrats anointed his successor vice president, the well-liked, if a bit of a drip, Al Gore, to take his mantle. And for the Republicans, party establishments tapped H.W. Bush's son, George W. Bush, for the nomination. And after a bit of a fight with John McCain, an Arizona senator and Vietnam veteran who positioned himself as a maverick outsider in the primaries, Bush fairly easily secures the nomination. And we get an election that is really only more interesting than 96 in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Like if uh, if that had been a, a blowout one way or the other, or even like a not particularly close race, the 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 run up to the thing itself would have been as sonambulant would be remembered as at being as sonambulant as the ninety six election. Uh, everyone had a vague understanding that these guys stood for basically the same thing, mm-hmm. and it came down to personality. Do you want the nerd who says he's going to look after your social security in his lockbox, or do you want uh, a a cool guy? Do you Virgin or Chad? I mean, it, it boils down to that. And the thing is that by this point, the Democratic Party's base wants nerds. Mm-hmm. They want virgins. Virgins make them feel good, makes them feel like people who are smart are in charge because they have absorbed meritocracy at the, at the, as their base conception of um, of virtue in public life. Uh, but there's a lot of people who like a party boy. And George mm-hmm. Bush the, was a party boy. He was a guy who got to pretend to be a Texas uh, hillbilly, even though he was a uh, Connecticut blue blood. Uh, and they ran uh, these very placid campaigns. Uh, Bush promised we were going to have a big military, but it wasn't going to do anything. We were going to have skeletal government, but don't worry. There's going to be plenty of charity to fill out, uh, to make up for the government's lack of a uh, of safety net. Uh, and between that, everyone sort of just shrugged and went into the booth and basically flipped a coin. And you got the result of a coin flip, 50 <laughs> fucking 50. So yes, lockboxes, strategery, Gore invented the internet. That's what I remember from this election. Uh, I remember sitting around a seventh grade table, seventh or eighth grade table with uh, you know my friends who were 
vehemently arguing with me as another eighth grader that the lockbox was a goofy strategy. And I was like, <laughs> I, I have enough knowledge to know that we do not know what the fuck we're talking about with preserving social security funds. But we all felt very strongly about it. Election night totals come in. Gore takes the Northeast, Upper Midwest and West. Bush takes Mountain West and South. And it all comes down to Florida. Yes. Uh, there is a there is an initial call for for Gore in Florida from the from many of the networks, but turns out late arriving ballots are turning towards Bush. It looks like it's essentially a tie, not aided by the fact that a poorly designed ballots in Palm Beach are leading to uh, incomplete and and botched ballots that have to be uh, looked at again. Uh, you have uh, everyone fleeing to the courts to try to get things settled, uh, and eventually. The Supreme Court rules five to four along a partisan basis to stop a recount that was going out in Florida that would likely have resulted uh, in Gore getting Florida and being elected presidency. Uh, and this event is the signal defining event of partisan politics in the 21st century. It defines mm-hmm. the coming asymmetry, asymmetry between a Republican Party that is willing to do anything and a Democratic Party that is limited in its that is limited by its devotion to maintaining the legitimacy of uh, democratic structures of governance. And this is because the Republican Party at this point has a unity of interest between its voters, its political representation, and the people who uh, fund it. The base wants culture war. The The politicians are happy to give them culture war, but all of them are willing to accede to capitalism being asserted uh, in the most uh, brutal and unadorned fashion, the market logic uh, mm-hmm. uh, dominating. They're all happy to uh, let that be the uh, North Star of their uh, economic policy. The Democratic Party has a fundamental rupture between a base that is still vestigially loyal to this broken social contract that they never got the fucking uh, memo on, that the Democratic Party has been insisting to them smugly for the last 30 or 20 years has not been broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who are at the top totally committed to capitalism as much as the Republicans are, which means that they have a special commitment to the maintenance of norms and institutional regimes of constraint that can then be blamed for their lack of action, that can then take the brunt of resentment from disappointed Democratic voters. And so that means that when the rubber hits the road in 2000, when it becomes a battle when, when politics falls away and it really does become a, a knife fight for control of uh, institutions, mm-hmm. one side is willing to do anything because they don't care if it fall, falls apart. Right. They don't care if, 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 if our belief in these institutions matters or not. They are still there. They're still a unified political movement. The Repub- Democrats at base the ones who uh, are in charge of anything are committed before anything, not to winning, but to maintaining institutional legitimacy. And so the Democrats simply would not do things Republicans are willing to do. Uh, And it leads to a situation where a Supreme court, which by the fate of presidential uh, politics had been dominated by Republican nominees is able to drop all pretense of objective uh, abstraction away from political considerations and to clearly and unapologetically say 
We are political actors. We are acting politically. We want a Republican to win, so the Republican is going to win. The the ruling in Bush versus Gore was explicitly said by the uh, court to not apply to any future cases, meaning that (laughs) if the exact conditions are reversed and the Democrats are seeking to stop a vote, then this does not prevent us from allowing the vote to continue because the only thing that matters is our partisan commitments. And that reality was obscured by a Democratic Party and media committed to building back up institutional faith. And the Gore campaign did it by not pressing once that happened. And so it goes. For a matter of 537 or so votes, Gore becomes the first candidate since Grover Cleveland in 1888 to win the popular vote and lose the election. George W. Bush becomes the president. But honestly, who cares? Other than being generally pissed a uh, party boy nepotism case moron had stolen the election, there wasn't much to cry over. The economy was humming on dot-coms and derivatives markets. The global outlook was peaceful. The U.S. was the undeniable, untouchable ultra-power of the world. Not much the shrub can fuck up here. It's time to kick back and enjoy the new millennium. Until, of course, one bright, sunny morning in September. Hell of Presidents is produced by me, Chris Wade, with our co-editor, Nick Quaz. Our theme music is by Nick Diamonds. Additional music for this episode is by Nick Allen, whose music you can find on Spotify as the band The Exclusive, and by Twitter user at graphic 98581344, whose music you can find at droopies.bandcamp.com, and by Alessandro Takeshi, whose album Songs About Cars is available at alessandrotakeshi.bandcamp.com. Our episode art is, as always, by Branson Reese. Join us next week for the thrilling conclusion of the U.S. presidency.